and welcome to the Origins Podcast. I'm your host, Lawrence Krauss. Robert Sapolsky is a genius, or so says the MacArthur Foundation when they gave him a genius grant. Whether he's a genius or not, I've known him personally and of his work for many years and have always been impressed by both the depth and breadth of his work. You can tell uh, how, how accomplished a scientist he is by how many departments he's a member of at, at Stanford. He's a professor of biology and neurology, and I think neuroscience, and who knows what else at Stanford University. And he's worked on primates and neurobiology and a host of other things, wrote a great book called Behave, and he has a new book out, um, and the new book is called Determined, The Science of Life Without Free Will. I, When I heard about it, I wanted to, uh, to, to speak to Robert. We've been for years trying to set up a time to talk in, in, in general about, about aspects of neurobiology, and this seemed like a good starting off point. And I got to read the book before it, 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 it came out, and it's, it's a long book. And it, for me, it was a challenge initially because uh, as someone who recognizes that there is no such thing as free will based on the laws of physics and has seen a host of books that I find rather tedious about free will, by some by people I've known, I was a little worried about reading this, but I knew that Robert always has gems to share. And the book is, is chock full of his own perceptions. It's, it's fun, just like he's fun. And, um, and it, one can learn a lot about neurobiology and then discuss the important question of once you accept that there is no such thing as free will, he really takes on head, head first the more difficult question of what do you do about responsibility and guilt and blame. So in any case, we did what, what I love to do on the Origins Project, and we talked about his own origins, and he and I shared more things than I knew about. And, um, and then we had a rollicking discussion of many aspects of free will, neurobiology, society, and uh, consciousness as well, as which is a subject I've written about in my new book. And I was happy to see that uh, it passed muster with him, uh, one of the experts. It was a great discussion. He's a remarkable individual and really fun to listen to and talk to. So I hope you'll enjoy listening to it and watching it ad-free on our Origins Project uh, podcast on our Critical Mass website, where paid subscribers will get to see the whole podcast ad-free. Of course, you can listen to the podcast on any on any site that podcasts can be listened to. And then uh, uh, eventually the, uh, the video will come up on our YouTube channel, on our Origins Project YouTube channel as well, a few days later, usually. Uh, no matter how you watch it or listen to it, I certainly hope uh, that you will uh, be as thrilled and pleased and entertained and educated as I was uh, when I had my dialogue with Robert Sapolsky. Well, thanks so much for joining me, Robert. We, we were saying before I pressed the record button that we am, were amazed we actually never have been in the same room to our knowledge. Uh, we've crossed paths intellectually, and, and, I, and as you know, I admire and respect you tremendously. So it's such a thrill to finally, after all this time, be able to have a long uh, discussion. So thanks for coming on. Well, thanks for having me on. The uh, respect is mutual. That's great. I appreciate it. Um, I, it's, this, 
This was no easy task. In fact, it's probably this this was one of the hardest things I've had to do for many reasons. I want to talk about your new book, which by the time this airs will be I'm going to try and time it to the to the airing of your new book. I have a pre-production version. Um your book Determined about free will. One of the hardest things for me it was not an easy task to to work through it for a variety of reasons. There's a lot there first. But also I come into this with the absolute conviction from everything I know saying there's no such thing as free will. So it was hard for me, to, you know, accepting this fact. I thought, well, why do we, I'm I, given that I don't, you know, think there's free will. Why am I really motivated to go through this? And, and that was hard <laughs> at the beginning. But but um, of course, what's great is that our reasons for my a priori reasons for not uh, thinking there was free will, or sort of are almost orth- not orthogonal, but oh, don't have much overlap. You actually know how the brain works, or at least a lot more than I do. And so your arguments really were um, quite useful. I, I, I don't think I needed them. I accept be- because basically, you and I both don't think there's a magic somewhere in the middle. That, uh, and that's really what you need, as we'll talk about. So that was one of the reasons I found it hard. But the other is, there's a lot in this book, because this book, uh, covers so many different interesting things. And that was the other part. I love your mind. I've always loved your mind. I love your writing and I love the way we think. And it was just, it was hard because it's a joy to read. I wanted to skip parts and I couldn't. <laughs> and, and and the footnotes of which there are tremendous. I, I, as a rule, I try not to read footnotes in books, but I read every footnote here because of course the footnotes are where you get to put on all the, all the stuff you, you, where I really get to see how your mind works. In any case, it's it was worth the effort, and I hope uh, this discussion will be worth people's effort because we're we're really going to go we're going to we're going to dig down and deep into 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 the ideas uh, as well as summarize them. But this is an origins podcast, and I like to find out about people's origins. I'm particularly interested in yours. Uh, what what led you to where you to the remarkable long and winding road that you've taken with so many branches almost like a uh, the emergent complexity of of, yes. of, of a neural <laughs> neural system uh, as or we'll talk about uh, you're you uh, so I've read a little bit of your biography that I could as much as I could find and I found out your your father was an architect okay and and that clearly and he was an Orthodox Jew your mother was I assume as well um, the more we learned the more we realized coerced. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Yes. Oh, interesting. Was she also? He was from Eastern Europe. He came uh, from Eastern Europe. Yeah, he came over just after the revolution as a like young adolescent. A very good time to get out of that area. Yeah. Um, she came over from the old country as a fetus, so uh, ah, okay. <laughs> she didn't. She didn't remember as much stuff back there as, yeah. as he. So she was born in the states. Yeah. Oh, uh, okay. And okay, so that, uh, but now I want to, I want to find out a little bit, I mean, and you were brought up as an Orthodox Jew. Okay. Yeah. Now, and one of the things I, you know, I was born as a, you know, sort of in a secular Jewish household uh, and brought up in that way, where I, where the only thing I, I learned, my, my mother kept telling me about good about being Jewish is that, you know, learning was a big deal and reading. She, she tried to convince me that was a big <laughs> part of religion. And, but you obviously love learning and reading, and of course, 
a lot of it's probably hardwired, but, but, um, who had the biggest influence? You're, so obviously your father had influence because you write about him, I don't, but I'd like to learn about your mother too. Who, for example, as an architect, when you were a kid, I know you want, you've loved gorillas right away, but what got you interested in that? I don't know that, and I'd like to. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to get into too, uh, too murky and quicksandish of uh, just mm-hmm. for psychotherapy mm-hmm. uh, but i was like eight when my mother my mother started mm-hmm. taking me to museum of natural history and it was an incredible percentage of field biologists i've encountered who like instead of growing up out in the bush and whose parents were missionaries or researchers they grew up in some urban and at some point they they stumbled into the natural history museum and that was it that's that's the day they imprinted on geckos or yeah, yeah. or whatever. So um, we went into the primate exhibit somewhat randomly. And if you ever go in there, there's this stuffed mountain gorilla, like right at the entrance. It may not be at the entrance anymore, but like he's been on their postcards forever. Mm-hmm. And he was shot by like Carl Ackley in 1912, probably with Teddy Roosevelt and yeah. his gun bearer but it's this like diorama of this taxidermed mountain gorilla silverback and like something clicked and if i'm gonna get all all fuzzy here and stuff um like both of my grandfathers died more than 50 years before i was born kind of thing and everything right and like something on some visceral level this just seemed like this would be the greatest grandfather on earth and i just wanted to go live inside the diorama i i I think that's (laughs) that's what was going on there that's where it came from okay i was wondering there had to been something because where you grew up in new york and you know there's not a lot of silverback gorillas at least uh non-metaphorical ones that's why i wanted to live in the diorama i I don't know about you, but I'm still trying to come to terms with the fact that Brooklyn has now become a trendy place to live. <laughs> it was not. Then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it wasn't then exactly. I, but, but, uh, but you know, it, but it gave you that opportunity, which, as we'll talk about, you know, gave you good luck, and 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 um, <laughs> and and had a huge influence. Now I understand where that came from, um, and you basically did live in that diorama. I mean, you you willing willfully chose as soon as you could as far as i can see to actually experience to go and for then for three decades to continue to try and live in that diorama at some level which yeah. really, it really impressed me and amazed me and also made me envious in some sense but i'll talk about privilege and good luck yeah yeah no it well but you you know well but for whatever reason you you took advantage of the privilege and good luck <laughs> um i would say it would be grit but i know better um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, um but so so that's interesting so your mother actually had the biggest influence that way what about reading i assume uh, i'm always interested in in you know reading was vitally significant for me and i'm always interested in what, what did you did you read a lot when you were a kid and if so did that example come from either parent or no um oh i read obsessively and like i i 
guaranteed I was going to be like kicked in the rear in schoolyard perpetually by, I don't know, in fourth grade, like, who's your best friend essay? And I said, books are my best friend. I go, oh my God, this kid has no instinct for how not to just beg to be abused and bullied. Um, yeah, books were were pretty great. Um, it's it's tempting to do a whole escapism thing, but I yeah. just part of it was also just getting patted on the head that this was like a nice metric for being a a good a good compliant boy. Were they in the, available in the house, or I mean, I mean, uh, or 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 not? I mean, what is that an example or something you picked up? Again, I'm interested just in comparing my to my, my notes to myself in some ways. To say. Um, a fair number. It was it was not quite a book obsessed house, but there was like a decent number there. But once once libraries started to be a part of the picture, what we did have, I, I. Do you remember the book of knowledge? Yeah, of course. Oh my God, we had the book of knowledge, and like I would get up early like on Sunday morning and just read the book where you could see like an article in there about like this newly finished ship called the Titanic. And it was like this ancient, it was, yeah. past. It was phenomenal. Yeah, no, it's, I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I love those things. I, and I, and I end up getting a subscription to book of knowledge type stuff, the time life books. Uh, I'm life. Remember yes. that my 20 volume thing was my first thing. Oh. I spent my allowance on it when I was a kid. Cause, cause there were books in my house, but not, but not, but not, yeah, not enough. For not two. that kind. Yeah, yeah, and so, yeah, one of them would show up like every six, and they smelled so good. Yeah, when yeah, they first yeah. came out of the box. I still have them. I still, I, I just put them up, and I, you know, I'm never going to get rid of them because it, it, it <laughs> they mean so much. So there's so, you know, that, and of course they're outdated. But that's what's great to, great to, that's what's great about science is they're outdated. It, it actually makes progress. <laughs> And they admitted somewhere afterward that that was wrong. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's the being wrong as well. You know, I, I, I talked about that in my new book. I think admitting you're wrong and not knowing is a key part of science. Um, now, okay. So now I see where the sort of background, by the way, as Orthodox Jewish, whether your mother was coerced in or not, did they, did they have plans for you? I mean, my mother wanted me to be a doctor and my brother to be a lawyer, but did they, did they want that kind of thing for you? Was there? Did you feel any pressure to be a professional in that way? Um, frantic, ceaseless, crushing, heartless pressure to become a doctor. Yeah. Okay. Um, where my my wife and I have like tried to figure out the chronology because it was a long time ago, but we think this is the case. Uh, that my father started off in med school, like in the second year of the depression. Uh -huh. It was going to be a cancer and ran out of money mm -hmm. and uh never finished um like we've we've got his like stethoscope and microscope in the back of some closet upstairs wow. um, from 1930 whatever um you know there, there's a couple of possible holes in the story but at least that that can hold together broadly so he uh you know he knew how to do drafting he had gone to stuyvesant high school in new york and like oh, okay. learned how to do that so he got a job doing that in an architectural firm and then decided to start going to architectural night school and before it was over with he was a professor of architecture kind of thing but 
year, not quite daily, but not far from about the highest possible calling would be to go like be a doctor and cure cancer. Uh, well, okay, that's it. Did he talk to you much about? I mean, did he talk to you much about science or his or his interests or did not? I mean, no. That that's not. Kids uh, often forget to ask their parents what they're interested in. But um, they came in sort of frenzied monologues. Um, he was he was a very very large presence, but he was not a very approachable one. Uh, uh, you know, he he'd had a tough time of things and. Uh, like he was doing his best yeah yeah but well he obviously did but and it's it's interesting to see that that pressure came from a different place for and for me and i've already said this a bunch of times so i think in, in different contexts my neither of my parents finished high school but but the i and for them there was especially important to be a doctor because it represented you know going beyond and and um and and uh and uh, and i again one I, when i got my first i got a fancy job at harvard and i never, never forget my my mother phoned my my then wife at the time and immediately said he still can go to medical school. There's still time. <laughs> Uncanny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had the same when I was getting like trying to pick where I was going to go have a job. I got an offer from like Cornell Med School, mm -hmm. neuro there, and said, "Well, I'm considering it and coming back to New York or whatever." And they said that would be a good inside connection if you decide oh that is freakish that you yeah have. that is that's amazing oh i'm glad i brought it up i wasn't gonna but that's yeah that is freakish now you well i have to ask you this did you did you learn swahili i mean i know you started to did you, did you ever like did you learn enough to, to did, yes you um, i'm i'm terrible at languages but it was just kind of by force I became sort of functionally fluent by about my fifth or sixth year there. Um, and all has done is decay since then. Um, I, I took Swahili for two years in college and it being the times that it was, the book was entirely written for like African-Americans thinking about mm. root stuff. So yeah. it was mostly like learning how to talk about Charlie Parker and Swahili yeah. stuff oh, like okay. that. Well, at least and it turned out the instructor was Tanzanian. So I learned Tanzanian Swahili, which is like showing up in the Bronx, speaking the Queen's English or oh, something yeah. to Kenya. Yeah. But, you know, I was, I was eventually able to get by, but I'm, I'm pretty bad at languages. I, I should have pointed out that. I mean, people may wonder if who don't know why I even brought that up, but you actually decided when you were still a teenager, early a teenager, that in addition to learning about, if you wanted to learn about gorillas, you would learn, so you started to learn Swahili when you were in your early teens, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's and driven. I was yeah. writing fan letters to various primatologists when I was in high school and eventually got to sit at the feet of one for four years, and that was a major disappointment. <laughs> 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 yeah, I, I sort of was intent. I think I had to have been the only like Jewish kid in Brooklyn in the 1970s sitting on the West Side independent train, the B train, reading a biography of Jomo Kenyatta day after day. <laughs> yeah, that would have gotten some. It would be interesting to see what would happen today if you were doing that. It's a different world. But um, you went, so you, that, that, 
it was kind of natural then to major. Um, you went to Harvard, right, and did biological anthropology. Yeah, and um, and the, and you know, and that's sort of, I guess, biological anthropology. I'm wondering why it wasn't like uh, um, uh, more. I mean, biological anthropology is not directly re- it, uh, focused on on primates. You could have done primatology, and I'm wondering what what what. what well, at the time, this was just at the time that like the great sociobiology shitstorm hit. In fact, it was amazing. It was, was amazing. A.O. Wilson, did you take classes from him or something? Or? My first semester is when he published sociobiology. And yeah, like spending college, like arguing about whether he or Lewinton made sense. And it oh, was... Wow incredibly stimulating time um you know at the time a bioanthro included primatology they shortly after that things got bad enough and there had been enough like drive-by shootings between the social anthro people and the bioanthro people that they split into two departments but yeah that was oh, that so was do both. Primates were. yeah and it's part of you know and you and as you say and and it's clear i mean you are one of the things I admire and I'm jealous of is, you know, I've always liked the idea of being a generalist, and you, you have, you've been a generalist in an, in in a in a clear way. I mean, we, achieving levels of levels in a in a wide variety of fields, and and it's nice that you could start that general generalization with bioanthro. Uh, and it was it was for, and it was a low profile department, so you could get away with like just happening not to take all sorts of requirements and things and it was it was nobody right. paid attention to their part and then it was very quiet um it's sort of around then that i then started my like am i a neurobiologist or primatologist crisis because said primatology god at whose feet i was sitting uh got sick my freshman year um he was fine and everything, but he canceled all of his classes, um, including a couple I was going to take and sort of at the last minute saying, yeah, maybe I'll take an intro neuro class. Uh, they, pr- they probably have something to say about behavior instead of just us evolutionary biologists. I was blown away by it. And like ever since deciding, am I a neurobiologist or am I a primatologist? And sort of that was that so you anticipated my question because i was wondering if you did bio, you know biological anthropology and you like primates why you then went to do uh you know your phd in, in neurobiology and and now that i guess that's the reason i would seem like a jump but uh and sort of by then the the, the way the the totally in intellectually fabricated way that i saw them as connected is like i go study behavior and stuff and baboons and exactly at the point where I would say, wow, what's going on inside? I'm not going to lesion this guy's hippocampus because like I've known him for years and his mother was great. Um, So I'll go do stuff to rats in a lab. And just when I'm learning about the brain there and saying, huh, I wonder if this works in like real animals out in the real world, I get to go back to the baboons. So they were synergistic. Um, You know, I couldn't decide which. Yeah, actually, I was well. I guess it's because of the love of the baboons or the great apes that, because I was going to say, you know, I've, uh, I actually just had a discussion with Peter Singer, and and who uh, who's lovely, interesting to talk to, and his, we talked about animal experimentation, and 
and and some of the silly things that have been done in the name of psychology on animals, the torturing of animals that didn't, you know, in order to try and understand how humans work, when it was clear often that if you want to really understand how humans work, you probably should examine humans. And, 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 and you know, it, and a certain, tor certain torching of rats was probably not going to give you huge insights into post-traumatic stress syndrome in humans and stuff. But, but, uh, but I was, but you didn't want, but you know, you could have chosen to work on humans, but you just found apes more interesting. Um, I would say more understandable, but maybe uh, the word is more palatable or more, uh, you know, I wanted to get out and do field work somewhere yeah. in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, no, I can understand that. I, 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 you know, and in your general, you, you, you are lucky to have a, a position that it, that actually explicitly demonstrates your your generalness. Um, something again, I always wanted, but I didn't. I always because I wanted. To, I started a degree in history and well as as well as physics, but I quickly learned that the intellectual baggage required me to do a degree in mathematics as well as physics, and that took up all, all the time. But but you you have you have professors in biological sciences, neurology, and this really always amazed me: neurological science and neurosurgery. And, and 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 my mother would have been very happy if I had been a professor of neurosurgery. But whoa, you better bet I trotted that out when I went back for Hanukkah. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? Well, you know, yeah. yeah, I think at one point the neurosurgery department had some sort of visiting committee and they suggested they needed a little more basic researchers in the department. So I was friends with the chief of neurosurgery who said, Hey, can we put your name on the letterhead? Oh, okay. so, Ever since then, I've been a member of the department. Oh, I, mean, that's I, I, I have to say, I, at one point, I was vice dean of the medical school at Case Western Reserve for, <laughs> for about six months. But uh, and I don't think I ever told my mother. I worried about what that would imply. So, <laughs> but um, but you know, it did intrigue me. So, your professor, I mean, and it and it's quite appropriate given all of the breadth of your, the lovely connections you make between neurobiology and and. And behavior of of as human behavior and and behavior of of great apes it's it is a lovely symbiotic relationship and it's and i guess it took someone like you to realize it was that that was useful i i'm intrigued that you and and i'm i guess i'm intrigued and impressed that among that collection of departments in which you're a professor psychology isn't one of them and i was wondering i was intrigued by that um that's a good question, nor is anthropology there, although yeah. they've, they've also purged like virtually everyone except the social and cultural anthropologists, so that 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 war has been won there. Um, I don't know. I talk to psychologists. I can I can occasionally say the right nouns and get away with it. But yeah, clearly some of the stuff I've done has involved my having to like interact with them a lot. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's interesting to me that anyway, let we'll get we'll, you people will see when we talk about the context of trying to address this question of free will, which I want to now move to. You mentioned you obviously you've agonized, I guess that's the right way to put it. You, you've thought about free will for a long time, obviously. And agonizing, I by agonizing, I don't think the agonizing was, I, I suspect you recognized like me that there were that there was no obvious obvious scientific reason why there should be free will but so maybe you didn't agonize by the science but you agonized to try and understand how to how to demonstrate explicitly 
or address this question. How long have you been thinking about it? Is it an issue that's always that's always bothered you? Or, or um... Well, I think once I started getting acne, that was right around the time when logical things happened, like I was having all sorts of like angst and the mm-hmm. contradictions of and you know, during one sort of particularly agitated uh period, I woke up at two in the morning one night and said, oh, I get it. God doesn't exist. (laughs) What's going on? And then shortly after that was, oh, and there's no free will. And that was followed by, and it's a totally empty empty and different universe. (laughs) So that cured everything right there. Adolescent It did for me too. I I didn't, I'm not sure I had an epiphany that way. In fact, I meant to ask you that. You... I noticed that age 13 is when you when you kind of made the real had this realization at least that's what your this bio says age 13 I I for me it was a gradual thing but I actually sort of became I mean age 13 was when I was bar mitzvah and that the that experience enough was enough to turn me off religion <laughs> forever if I hadn't if it hadn't already been that way was was the age 13 a coincidence for you too or no uh, no, not at all. Of of course, I would say just from focusing on the ways in which often ancient and well-established cultures have influenced your life and in which the purpose of every generation is to inculcate their offspring into the mm-hmm. same cultural values, uh, you know, age 13 is when they're really pressing court on that one. Yeah. So that's kind of when inevitably the this doesn't make any sense and this isn't right so you know, now you mention it though it shows that they understood neuroscience a little bit because you point out how in fact the prefrontal cortex and i mean it's that period when things are developing so if you're going to inculcate um that's probably a really good time to do it and especially do it in a way where they somehow make you feel guilty for a pogrom that happened in the 15th century. Yeah. So the very yeah. least thing you could do right now is make your children messed up with that as well. Yeah, well, guilt is a huge part of that, I think. Um, but, you so, know, it's interesting when you said you smiled when you came, when it cured everything when you woke up in the middle of the night. And I, I want to follow that up. We'll come back near the end of this um, six or seven hour discussion. Um, uh <laughs> to this question because almost you almost apologize or make it appear as if recognizing that there's no free will is and should be a depressing thing but one could often say and i'm often asked that i mean isn't recognizing there's no meaning no cosmic meaning to the universe and no god also a depressing thing and we'll talk about its impact on morals because you talk about that but for me it was exactly the opposite and maybe it's just the wiring it it was it's liberating and 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 in energizing to know both of those things because it makes sort of it makes you understand your place and it makes every moment in some ways more precious if you understand that there's nothing guiding it and there's no and and that you're here for a short time and and you're dealt a set of cards and um and and that's life and you might as well use it well you're you're made of more resilient stuff than me somebody somebody did right by you leading up to that point or somebody's nutrient level when you were a fetus did right by you but yeah that's the notion 
I mean, this is, um, I'm, I, I just agreed to blurb a manuscript for a book of someone, a scientist who experienced just a horrendous nightmares, family tragedy. Mm-hmm. And the book is about like how he has found comfort in science. And I sure can't wait to read it because like, how do you do that? <laughs> um, science just seemed like the only intellectually sustainable default state to try to understand things, but it sure does not give comfort much. Yeah. Well, I guess again, it's all in, it's long, all in the attitude. I, I, I do, I, I, since we're both atheists in that sense, but I, I obviously for some reason or other, I've been labeled it. Uh, it's, it's higher in my profile and because I've spent time trying to protect things like the teaching revolution in schools and got, got involved in that because uh, the biologists weren't doing it enough, in my opinion. That's why. Right. right. You, you died for our sins. Trying yeah, to right. creationism. But, uh, but because of that, um, I spent a lot of time talking to people about this issue. And, and I, I do think that that, that real, that realizing one talks about loss of faith and even that that's already propaganda or that's already promoting a reality that doesn't need to be. It's not a lot. You don't lose anything. You gain, I think. And if you indicate people that you can gain by making every, you know, recognizing every moment's more precious, if you have that mentality and you recognize it, then you don't have to, then, then, then you gain. Anyway, I think I, that's the kind of, you know, if, if I'm going to do a feel good or try to try to be a, a you know, um, I don't try to be advice or a, uh, 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 one of those kind of vice scientists, but, <laughs> but, but, but if I did, I mean, that's what I think that's the, that's the argument. And I'm going to try and argue it later on. I, 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 I struggled a lot with the last half of this book because I could see your angst. We'll get to it. Um, but I think there's, I, I can see a happy way out and maybe it isn't, but we'll see if I, we'll see if you think about it. Well, I, I think I finally, it took me like, a huge amount of time to get to the end there because like, how can this not just be, well, this sucks and is pretty demoralizing, but you know, we're adults. That's the way they work to see that there is actually a good feature of it and a liberating one. Um, I sure can't convince myself of it most of the time. And not only did I write the damn book, I read it even at various points. (laughs) Um, yeah, it's a it's a hard pull, but it's kind of it, it's reminding me of that great rebranding that atheism has tried to do in recent years. We are not just about what isn't. We are not just a theist. We're not just like saying, "I don't believe there's a god," and as long as we're at it, I don't believe there's an Easter bunny. No, it's a positive, and the whole rebranding is humanism, and to be able to say like the source of human goodness is human. (laughs) Um, That's, that's not just saying, you know, it wasn't in seven days that the world got created and like smoting is probably not a good thing most of the time. (laughs) Um, Yeah. There's the, there's, there's rooms for, for positivity in there. Yeah. I think, well, I think, you know, well, I think, as I'll argue, as you know, and I, I, I did was reminded of a quote from my friend 
my late friend Christopher Hitchens here. I mean, I don't think we have a choice, um, ultimately. <laughs> and 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 I think that we we should, you know, in so, I, I'm I'm getting ahead of myself, but in some sense, part part of the last part of the book is saying, well, we have how can we 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 wanting there to be free will and believing their free will is so is so ingrained how can we get over it but i think we just recognize that 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 not not thinking not thinking in terms of free will is just part of the way we're wired to and that's we don't have the we don't have the choice to not want to not <laughs> emotionally want there to be free will we have the we don't have any choice. I'll agree with you there, but but we can intellectually, through through learning, we'll argue at some level, recognize rationally that there isn't. But but I think um, you know, uh, recognizing that we don't have the free will to not to not emotionally believe in free will is just something we have to accept. I think and should not struggle with. Um, to some extent, I mean, Robert Robert Trivers, like mm -hmm. one of the pioneering sociobiologists um during one period got very interested and in published some stuff on the evolution of the capacity for self-deception yeah. essentially saying if you're going to have a species that can know the future like the only way you're going to get up in the day is the ability for self-deception interestingly equally interesting is the notion that evolution of self-deception because the best way to convince people of your laws is to believe your laws and competition and all of that. So he got very interested in that, but just the very notion that if you're going to be this smart, um, it's a pretty helpful thing. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I always say we all, all every one of us has to believe six impossible things for our breakfast, just to get up. <laughs> you like your colleagues, you like your job, you like your spouse, whatever it is, but you know, you just got to get out of bed and, and, um, and that's okay. I mean, but but a great thing is to recognize it's okay to recognize it's an illusion, but to but to but to um but to recognize it doesn't diminish the fact that we know we have it and to say and, and almost revel in it. But anyway, let's get let's get to you know, I, I could have spent time talking about the last book, Behave, which is a precursor to this, but this book determined is about free will. And and by the way, I, it seemed to me not only have you agonized about it for years, when did you really start to think about it? It was when you realized that there, there's no God at the same time as when you began to think. Yeah. About it. And then, yeah. and then you, you've actually also put your, not your money, well, you made your money where your mouth is. You've actually gotten involved in, if, in, in consequentially, if there is no free will, then there's a question of responsibility and punishment, which we'll get to. And you've gotten involved in prisons, in, in, in court cases, and really taken this on, which I really admire as well. I, I, you've, you've internalized it, or at least shown that. Well, before it's lauded, I should just basically say it's a totally fun hobby because it's a totally fun hobby. You find out about some of the most horrific things that can happen to people. And as a result of that damage, some of the most horrific things they could do to other people and like what a totally broken system it is, blah, blah, blah. But it's kind of like, it's cool trying to convince 12 skeptics who are getting to decide whether or not this person is going to be in jail for life to think differently. Um, it almost never works. Yeah. And it's cool to have a smart DA during cross-examination who wants to argue it. So, you know, it's okay. another version of that, but. Well, it's okay. I, I always tell people you, what you're, what you're saying is just simply, you have to enjoy what you're doing. I, I tell people that, and I, 
most scientists, most scientists, you know, don't become scientists to save the world. You cure <laughs> cancer or whatever. They do it because they it's cool and they like it. And it's in the process of something good comes out of it. That's great. That's great too. But because dry ice is just like fun to play with. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Magnets and all the rest. That's Magnets. why I'm a phys- I often ask people why they didn't become physicists. I was going to say, because it's why it's so neat. Why didn't anyway, by the way, <laughs> did you ever, did, did, did you ever toy with that the physical sciences as, or is always biological sciences that you. Always biological and always like cutting every corner to like avoid the chemistry requirements and stuff. Okay. Just, just not my temperament i've i've had to spend years and years filling in the the crater holes of where i didn't get the basic mm-hmm. information that's okay that's okay because you know that's what it's for i you know i learned a lot more physics after i got my phd than before anyway but but uh <laughs> you know that's where you, you you yeah it's all right because that's called lifelong learning now the basic premise of determined um basically that there are, you know, and, and, and you might say, why is this, why is right now, is there so much here to just say two things? There's no uncaused decision-making. No decision is made by some magical thing. It's always caused by a series of causes, which then have causes, which then, as you say at the beginning of the book, turtles all the way down. Um, and the second is that if that's the case, then what, then resp- the notion of responsibility for your decision making, if if there's if there's no ran no spontaneous decision making, if there's no free will, if everything is based on as on on some physical biological uh, chemical process, then then we have to re we have to rena- renounce or at least re- rethink what we mean by taking responsibility for our actions. Those are the two. If I were to summarize, is that a reasonable summary of 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 the of the Yes. general context of the book yes okay um and now having done that well will i want to unpack it and there's a lot to unpack um um and um and uh and i did i have to say i you know i was cursing you last night when i was reading the last hundred pages and and <laughs> staying up all night um but but uh but i had to i took solace from the realization that I had no choice in the, in the matter. <laughs> and and do you know the quote from, I was alluding to it from Christopher Hitchens when he was asked about free will. Do you know his quote? He said, he said, yes, I have free will. I have no choice. But that's wrong. But I think if we just said, yes, I feel I have free will. I have no choice. That'd be right. Now, Which reminds me of like one of the theological loops for getting to that. I can't remember Aquinas or who knows what, or no doubt someone much more close-minded than that, saying, like, God is so glorious, so amazing, and having granted us free will that we have no choice but to worship him. <laughs> uh, Perfect. That yeah. captures it. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's great. I got to remember that. That's good. Well, uh, look, I periodically I'm going to read quotes of yours because I like them, uh, and, and it'll, it'll allow me a chance to give you a chance to expand upon them, obviously not in as much detail as the book, but at least give a sense. Um, but basically right off in, in the very beginning, um, uh, where you talk about turtles all the way down, you say to reiterate, when you behave in a particular way, which is to say, when your brain has generated a particular behavior, it is because of the determinism that came just before, 
which was caused by the determinism just before that, and before that all the way down. The approach of this book is to show how that determinism works, to explore how the biology over which you had no control, interacting with environment over which you had no control, made you you. And when people claim that there are causeless causes of your behavior that they call free will, they have A, failed to recognize or not learned about the determinism lurking beneath the surface, and or B, erroneously concluded that the rarefied aspects of the universe that do work indeterministically can explain your character, morals, and behavior. Now, um, so the point is, it's easy, you know, to say that, that things are deterministic is fine, and then it'd be a very short book. And a lot of people have written not so short books that basically don't say any more than that. And I won't alert to some, to some of those people. Um, but you want to talk about the biology of this. And, and I think that the neurobiology of it, and I think that's what makes it incredibly enlightening, enlightening to learn about this. But, but you, you basically um, uh, come down to say, okay, you need to look at all of science uh, to do this. And as a generalist, you, uh, you, you, uh, you, it fits in your, your, your sort of natural predilections. Crucially, all discipline, all these disciplines, and you talk about many disciplines, collectively negate free will because they are all interlinked, constituting the same ultimate body of knowledge. If you talk about the effects of neurotransmitters on behavior, you are also implicitly talking about the genes that specify the construction of those chemical messengers and the evolution of those genes. The field of neurochemistry, genetics, and evolutionary biology can't be separated. And it goes on. So this notion that that there's this biological basis requires us and we'll talk about each of those aspects particularly but 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 logically you frame the argument as there's three there's sort of four complementary ways of thinking and i want to get you sort of to elaborate on that you say we have a choice the world is deterministic and there's no free will the world is deterministic and there is free will the world is not deterministic and there's no free will and the world is not deterministic, and there is free will. So um, we're gonna we're gonna unpack those more carefully. But do you want to do you want to give it a, a sort of a, a an expansion of those of of of, of, of each of those areas and what the central concepts of why there are fallacies in some and not others? Yeah, um, and you know, two by two matrix where two of the four are a lot more interesting than the other two. Um, one of them makes no sense at all, which is the world is not deterministic, but you don't have free will. And I, I don't quite know how you get there. And I don't think I've read anyone that, that's just making sure, like, fill out the matrix there. Yeah. Um, the There is not determinism and there is free will. Is this somewhat off in the ozone view of libertarian philosophy, libertarian in an intellectual sense rather than political. Mm. And, you know, I got pulled into reading any of this philosophy stuff, kicking and screaming, but yes. it appears to be like a very minority view. Um, the most common one is that, yeah, yeah, yeah it's a deterministic world. I'm not a, uh, I'm not a Luddite. I'm not a whatever. Yet there's like atoms 
and we're made of cells and like there's rules to the physical universe and stuff, but somehow, 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 somehow that's compatible with us still having free will. And this compatibilism one is what I spend like most of the book hair, tearing my hair out because what the polls show is 90, 95% of philosophers say that they are deterministic compatibilists and like a shocking number of neuroscientists when you really back them up in a corner and you try to get them to look at what it is that they just said or advocated. Um, but it's this notion that, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, of course, like I'm a modern, it's 21st century, all of that. Um, and we're made of stuff and the universe has rules and all that. But somehow, 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 there's room for this intangible thing to still be lurking in there. And that's the essence. That's the us of us. And that's the us of us that gives us agency. And of course, the fourth truly lunatic fringe version of the matrix is the one that I'm saying, which is it's a completely deterministic world and there's no free will whatsoever. Compatibilism is incompatible with the way the world works. Okay, great. And, and a, a premise which I, which I agree with as a physicist, and it was, you know, so I have my, we'll get to the, some of the physical arguments, but it, so it's, for me, it's wonderful to, to see the biological basis as well. And, but, but as a physicist, I, it seems to me that, that that's clear. The, the, it's certainly interesting that 90% of the, we'll get to it, we'll get to the fact that you spend a lot of time, it doesn't say much about philosophy, um, which is fine because, um, you know, and, uh, and by the way, it's not just me, you know, some people think I trash philosophy too much, but I, again, was talking to Peter Simmer, Singer, who's a philosopher, and it was, unfun, it was fun to see him trash philosophy, because a lot of philosophers talk about how animals don't have rights, because it's clear they don't have rights. I mean, as if, as if there's, you know, and, and we'll get to it, but it's almost low-hanging fruit in some, some ways to see the arguments that, that are presented. Okay, that's great. That, that, that puts the, put things in context. But you actually mentioned, and I think it's worthwhile saying, what do you mean by free will and what do you mean by determinism? The next thing, you, you talk about that. And so I'll give you a chance to sort of briefly explain what you mean by free will and what you mean by determinism. Well, this is where everybody like spends half the conference on arguing about yeah. definitions and stuff. Um, but I think, well, maybe the place to start defining free will um, is what it's not, even though lots of people go for this. Mm -hmm. And this is a super influential way of seeing free will where there isn't, because it's what, what runs through the entire criminal justice system. You got somebody on trial, and essentially trials revolve around three questions. Did this person, after they figure out what the person did, did yeah. the person intend to do it? Did they know what the consequences were likely to be? And did they understand that there were alternatives? They could have done something else. And if the answer to those are yes, that's it. The person showed free will and lock them up. Um, and an equivalent myopia has run through sort of one field of like neurobiologists thinking about free will. And this is from this like landmark famous experiment in the 1980s by Benjamin Libet. And you read any damn paper on the biology and by the second paragraph out comes Libet and you want to scream. Libet's the one who's done that study that 
That's the famous one. He sat people down and basically said, here, do this, do this behavior and do it whenever you feel like it. Press this button and, you know, whenever you feel like it. And we're going to hook you up to all sorts of like modern ways to see what's going on in your brain and your muscles and all of that. And out of it came this incredible finding. So you put people in there and like you're monitoring what's happening in their brains when they decide to do something. And what they reported was at the moment that someone said, that's when I got the intention to press the button. You could already tell from their brain, like up to a few seconds before that they had decided to push the button. Oh my God, everybody learned. Neuroscientists have just shown your brain knows before you do with, of course, this ridiculous like dichotomy there. But like people have been fighting about it ever since was the do, can you tell the difference between when you intend to do something and when you know that you intend to do it? And was there a better way of measuring the milliseconds? And like, like there's still papers being published saying things like Libet had his head up as he was so wrong. Like 40 years later, people are still fighting over it because it's essentially the question of when you believe you intend to do something has this imaginary separate construct, your brain already decided to do it. And both in that route and in the courtroom, that's the most ridiculously useless thing to do because like the metaphor I use, it's like trying to review a movie based on only seeing the last three minutes of it. Because whether it's in the courtroom or whether it's hanging with Libet and his detractors, in both cases, you're not asking the critical question. Yes, 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 the guy intended to do this and knew he could have done other. Yes, 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 the person did or didn't intend before this part of their brain had a bunch of action potentials. Where did that intent come from? And if you're going to talk about free will, you're not off the hook if you just say the person intended to do that. Yeah. Where did that intent come from? Why did that psych 101 freshman show up to do this experiment for Libet that day instead of like coming in and stealing the guy's laptop and sneaking out? Why was that? Where does intent come from? And the answer is, as you figure that out, that's where any semblance of free will goes down the drain. Okay, that's great. That's that's great. Let me let me. I was going to go to Libet anyway, but we'll, and we'll we'll take a break to t for a second to talk about determinism because I want you to, uh, uh, want you to explain it too. But but since you brought up Libet and I and I, when I was writing my book on consciousness, obviously I had to address that. But I, you know, it, ne it never it never seemed to strike me as a problem because all it indicates is it confirmed my I should say my pre my predilection in advance, which was confirmed everything I read about consciousness, which is that consciousness is just a surface phenomena. So yeah, I mean, okay, so people report that's what, but but everything we know, it says you really don't know what's, your your perception of what's going on, it's totally different than what's going on in your brain. And so, okay, so that proves it, big deal. What does that prove? It just proves what you kind of know anyway, that people, that people's sense of why they're doing what they're doing is, um, is, is, uh, is, is wrong. It's the same reason, that, you know, philosophers could come up and say, um, there's there's a determinism, but 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 there's no free will. Why? It's because um, reason is the slave of passion, as you <laughs> might have said. 
yeah, if you if you really want that to be the case, you can find a reason for it. But it's no, but but Libet, I mean, it's fascinating. As far as I know, there's still debate about whether that delay was really there. Although you pointed out at one point, there's some evidence that the prefrontal cortex begins to experience some some I don't know whether it's an action potential tens up to ten seconds before, which ten I was seconds. shocked by. Which is when they they went from moving from medieval electroencephalograms on the skull to modern imaging stuff and took them back to tense. It's that point when people start arguing, can we tell the difference between intent and an urge? Are we seeing the urge? And it's at that point where you say, you know, this is sort of interesting. And I have like all sorts of respectable colleagues who... I've spent a lot of time working on this problem, but it's not where you're going to prove or disprove free will because you got there for the last three minutes. For the end of it. Okay. And we'll get to the fact that it's a lot more than the last three minutes. You have to go through hours, days, years, millennia, and millions of years. But but let's but let's just it, just to clarify our definition. So I think you've discussed that a little bit. Let's talk about determinism and in and, and the context of what you mean, and maybe in the context of Laplace or or someone else? Well, not not a Laplacian demon, mm-hmm. uh, which is the other, he always has to come up in the second paragraph also, just somewhere yeah. around a little bit. Yeah. Uh, okay, they, they checked the boxes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I held off to three paragraphs before it did, so I am a maverick. Um, determinism. I basically define it by exclusion which is you look at why something happened and as soon as you're informed enough to know that all sorts of things influence stuff that we're not aware of that could be very distal in time or place that could be subtle that could be subliminal blah 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 etc etc um it's when you look why something has happened and there's no contributing factor that requires invoking magic that's the key point. The invoking magic. We'll get to that. And, and as I say later, it, I think it reminds me of my favorite Sidney Harris cartoon, which I'll remind you of if you don't know of it at some point later. But um, but this. Okay, so that's the term. That's sort of the the question of whether there's magic or whether there's or whether things are you know or not. Really, that I agree. That's what you really mean by determinism. If there's some, if the laws of nature somehow break down somewhere in the middle. Um, and given that the laws of nature are deterministic, and one of the things I, I hope to, I don't know whether correct, I hope to change your picture of is, is, is when we get to quantum mechanics, quantum mechanics is deterministic. I think you've been led astray there. Oh you, my although, God. you know, I... it, it, you know it, you, I, it's fine that you, the argument is that might not be, and you could still show it doesn't make a difference, but I, I think it's even, it's, you don't even have to worry about that. Well, um, I was in a path of last night saying, Oh my God, I have the nerve to write two chapters about quantum mechanics and we're ta- I'm talking with you tomorrow. So you've just confirmed everything that I knew had to be learning, which is like calling me a dilettante as a compliment. No, 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 but it's okay. I mean, it's it's okay because what I, in some sense it was conservative. I would, I, I would, I'm going to be generous, but I would say where I would disagree with you, you go overboard and then show that even if it's overboard, it doesn't make a difference anyway. So it's, just, but, but I, but we'll talk about that. Okay. Um, but, but, the, but I do want to get, I mean, the, central to all of this, just to make it clear and, and I, that we, you know, that my understanding is it, from your book and my other things is the same is that 
we realize that we that most of that our conscious what we define as consciousness what we define as intent what we perceive as all of these things is is just our awareness is just the tip of an iceberg that 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 it's the last stage of of a of a detailed behavior in the brain that we still don't understand and we understand contribute contributing factors but that's that this sense of free will like everything else like even our sense of consciousness is somehow a post-hoc illusion i mean we're piecing together a world in which we have an us and in our brain and a me and and there's some continuity and and that's 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 what our brains is doing but it doesn't but it doesn't that's the that's the end result not the beginning I mean, is that are we, perfect is that reasonable to say yep yeah. okay yes. now one of the ways to 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 demonstrate this other than just talking about it the fact that reporting is unreliable and by the way it was um i in i know you read the that part of my book on that, that and it's the the experiments of michael gazanigo on on the split brain thing were for me just so overwhelming that you that you invent this perfectly rational explanation, which is obviously totally false for why you're doing something. But you give lots of examples because you know what you're talking about. I, I just sort of read a few and I appear to know what I'm talking about. But um, but one one of the ways you can show that people um, that this sense of free will is an illusion is is an experiment, a psychology experiment uh, that this sense of agency is illusory um, is uh, is. Um, is having people push a button when their hands are being controlled by something else. You want to, you want to talk about that for something? I found that quite interesting. Yeah, that's, that's the one that really pushes lots of people over the edge there. There are means these days. One, one like standard one is this very cool thing, transcranial magnetic stimulation um, where you can stimulate a certain part of the brain and make somebody do something like this is not suddenly make them become a libertarian when they weren't, but this is like, you could make their index finger contract no matter what you try to do. And if it's done subtly enough, you will believe you decided to do that. I mean, I've had that done on me and it's the weirdest thing imaginable, or there's all sorts of ways of manipulating the libit scenario where they add like an extra bell or something, which you were told is driven by your volitional, intentional doing whatever, um, and where they can manipulate that in ways where you will feel as if you decided to wait a little bit longer that time before buzzing it. There's it's amazing. I mean, it's, any, it's yeah. wonderful. It's wonderful the control you can have the, to to I mean to to explicitly demonstrate these things which one can talk about vaguely. I love that. I, and, it's, and you really feel like you you're press you're choosing to press that button. You've had it done on you. It's it's the weirdest thing. It's a good thing I didn't believe in free will beforehand or else I would have stopped believing in free will. But, you know, we know this. There's incredibly smart people who are paid a whole lot of money to make you believe you really want to buy some nonsense crap that they're advertising. You know, it, it shows how much you want to believe in free will, that you can do an experiment like that, where you have this sense of agency, and, and it's completely uh, 
completely explicitly an illusion because it was created and yet it doesn't it 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 that's not sufficient to convince people and we'll need a lot more as we'll talk as and you spend a lot of time because you want to talk about you want to try and address all of the arguments that you've heard over the years i think that you're trying to finally address that say you know because you've heard all of them but you then you then go to consciousness self where you i was really pleased to say that you know obviously i think it's right because it agrees with me but but um <laughs> but that you know consciousness is an epiphenomena i love that where you point which which by the way Noam Chomsky said to me in a different context, but he said, but where you say consciousness is an irrelevant hiccup, which I was, I, I'm going to quote that over it's and over fantastic. again. Um, and, and um, the, the key part of this irrelevant hiccup, which is really central, and, and this is the whole part of, of the, the question, the, the, the hard problem of consciousness, as people would, might say, some people have said, is what, is what you know, the, some people say the hard consciousness, problem of consciousness, is what is the we that, that, that makes us, but the really interesting question to me is what, what gives us the illusion of a we? That's, that's the problem I would want to answer. But, but um but you say something like our brains generate a suggestion and we then judge it. This dualism suggests thinking back centuries. So it's, it, it enters into even, I guess, into, into sort of the parlance of at least some of neuroscience and a lot of philosophy that somehow there's a separation between our brain and the we. You want to elaborate on that a little bit in your perspective of that? Yeah, and it's totally false and just to show sort of the pedigree that comes with like arguably the most influential compatibilist philosopher on earth right now talks about exactly that model with a possibility generator an idea generator that comes and then you pick then the dichotomously pristine made of marshmallow you floating around up there picks among the possibilities based on your learning experiences and your values and all that. and like that's that's where free will slips in yeah um, no and, and i don't and that and and you i think i want to i want to there's an elephant in the room here and it's dan dennett um <laughs> And 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 I do wanna I do wanna mention that because it seems to me it demonstrates. I know Dan, and he's been a friend of mine for a long time. But it amazes me how conf how someone who is remarkable in his arguments about many things can be so confused and illogical that somehow um, obvious nonsense like that. If if he can be that confused and logical, it, it should make you suspicious about the rest of the of the field. Yes, and just to show where I think that's coming from, um, like I I tiptoed around him with kid gloves, mm -hmm. insofar as I think uh, a lot of his values come through a lot of his philosophizing in ways yeah. that I think tell us about how he's gotten some very wrong conclusions. Um, how can he be so smart that he concludes that this quote that gives it all away in one of his talks, and you can find a zillion versions of it on YouTube in one of his books, saying, oh my God, I wouldn't want to live in a world in which no one thought there was free will because they'd just be running amok and rapist and violence. And besides, we wouldn't be able to feel like we earned our prizes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
We'll That's why <laughs> the guy is invested in free will. Um, yeah. There's not a whole lot of people who are saying, oh, my God, if people stop believing in free will, I won't be able to feel like I earned my low socioeconomic status and my abusive parents and my. Yeah, yeah well, I will come to that. I think you mentioned that very thing at the end. And I want to talk about I want to talk about how a way out of that, too. Maybe it'll help Dan. But um, but um <laughs> Oh, good. But but you know what is surprising is to hear Dan is, you know, like me and, and in many ways, well, in always a more well-known atheist. But it's so ridiculous to hear that sentence because you could replace free will with religion and God. And he would argue completely the opposite. I yes. wouldn't want to live in a world where there's where people didn't believe in there's God, because if they did, then they'd be running amok. And like, Dan, don't you see the complete illogic of that? And I. I must say, I've God seen, wouldn't have blessed me with my endowed chair. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. God wouldn't. But, but you know, but, and I don't want to pick on Dan too much, although I think he deserves it in this case. Um, uh, is this, all of this argument that somehow there's a, there's a generator or you're inventing something that no one's ever seen or measured that somehow allows you around get around the problem that there's no evidence whatsoever and every logical argument you can think of shows there's no place for free will. It's And uh, later on, we'll talk about that. It reminds me of the God of the gaps argument. The more we learn, the, play, the less place there is for free will to exist. It's a very similar argument. It, when I was reading the book, I, I wrote on God of the gaps at one point later on in the book. Um, but it, let me remind you this Sidney Harris cartoon, which you can use in your lectures if you haven't. Um, it's two physicists at a, Blackboard, have you seen that uh, that that thing? Where it's a long equation, and then and then in the middle it says, and then a miracle occurs, and then one of the guys says to the other, I think you should be a little more explicit at at that step <laughs> right there. But it's exactly that, right? It's it, it's perfect. It's, it's exactly that, and perfect. and you have to presume magic. But what intrigued me, I do want you to elaborate on one thing. It's a, almost the last sentence of the of 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 um of um. Oh yeah, in of of that particular uh, section of the book, you say, um, "Okay, thinking that it's sufficient to merely know about the intent and the present is far worse than just intellectual blindness. Far worse than believing that it is the very first turtle on the way, way down that's floating in the air. In a world such as we have, it's deeply ethically flawed as well." And you just leave that hanging there, and and maybe because you can want to talk about it later, but make. Why is it ethically flawed? Um, because the subject about whether there's free will at the end of the day isn't about neuroscience and isn't about philosophy. And isn't, it's about the fact that we've created a world that runs on a myth that is just and runs on a myth that it is ethically defendable to have a world in which all sorts of people are rewarded for things they didn't earn, and a vastly larger number of people live lives of misery and deprivation, and are viewed as having been entitled to it for things they had no control over either. Okay. <laughs> yeah, and we'll get, you know, sorry. Okay, good. Okay. Um, I get worked up about this one. Yeah, so well, good. Well, oh, you, I can't wait. To, if you're worked up about this, yeah, well, that's the part of the book where you can really <laughs> sense the emotion and frustration 
and yet also fear that you're going to say something that you know it's, it, that people are going to yeah, anyway it's interesting um, and the bravery it took to write it down i think you talk about that you were hesitant you know one of the many there are lots of things that cause you to take time in writing this book but but how people respond to the obvious consequences of what you're saying is is terrifying a little bit i think i can understand that um you next talk about where intent comes from where you really begin to get into the into for me the fascinating aspects of neurobiology much of which i knew nothing about and so it was great learning experience for me also depressing of course because every time you learn i mean it's driven home even things that i the examples the explicit examples and empirical examples of things that i might have presumed exist are are depressing like the fact that that when you make decisions about things that you think are decisions that you say in three different studies subjects and brain scanners alternated between rating the beauty of something or the goodness of the same behavior and basically and you say both types of assessments activated the same region the orbital frontal cortex or ofc the more beautiful or good the more ofc activation it's as if irrelevant emotions about beauty gum up cerebral contemplation of the scales of justice namely you make decisions and and it's just explicit not just where we we know that but you can measure the brain and see that it is that these that these external things which you shouldn't which you don't think are affecting your rationality are are totally determining what you think is rational yep and never in a million years with the average person who's just made one of those judgments saying oh that's interesting why did you uh decide that Oh, it's because my orbital frontal cortex evolved that it has trouble distinguishing between the two because it's very recently that we evolved making moral assessments rather than just like appearance assessments. Oh, that's why I did that. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. And 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 it's true. We we as you point out that that we that these moral assessments are, re- are recent. So yeah, all of the biological machinery was developed without that. And we've built up a a, a morality and a rationality again trying to impose that on on an infrastructure that wasn't based on any of that once again if if hume had been around today he would say that reason is a slave of passion it's yeah. i mean this gives meat to that b- beautiful quote it, i mean which he presumed presumed i guess in, the, in on the basis of thinking about things but but not with the evidence that you have. And it's great to see evidence that specifically shows over and over again that reason is a slave of passion. Well, and you used a great word for describing all of it, kludge, of like, oh, it's just this mishmash that you kind of put together and improvised, which is the human brain. Um, another soundbite of the field, evolution is not an inventor, it's a tinkerer. Okay, what do we got here? And we suddenly have like come up with a notion of love where where we okay give me some duct tape this part of the brain is going (laughs) to handle it even though for a hundred million years it's been doing this instead so there's going to be some mistakes yeah that's exactly it and uh, and okay and then when you so you begin to in each of these cases for the first when you talk about the, the the biological basis of trying to address this fallacy of of free will of perceived free will you you talk about you try and again put meat on turtles all the way down by saying okay you have this intent 
What about the minutes before? What about the hours before? What about the days before, the millennia before, the millions of years before? And I, and I want to you know unpack that a little bit. Um, you talk about um, uh, um, you know pre-existing tendencies towards aggression, and um, um, and 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 uh, and how you say about all because of how much life has taught them at a young age that the world is a menacing place that people or that animals in particular that that experience the fact the world is aggressive is a menacing place respond with the kind of aggression that you might have that's not surprising that that they don't control that it's based on it's based on their experiences minutes hours years or lifetimes or genetically beforehand yeah exactly one of the things that I was interested in, and I, I want to throw these things in because there's so many neat examples, is um, it, it just to show a sense that, you know, when we talk about being good people by being monogamous versus polygamous, <laughs> you talk about different species and oxytocin and ter- t- testosterone and and uh, vasopressin receptor levels. And, and why don't you talk about what happened? I was going to quote it, but you better, you can talk about polygamous rodent species versus monogamous rodent species. And, and how, and, and, and I found this fact, once again, fascinating when you think about this, what we impose as a moral issue now um, is a, um, is a, is, is biology. And biological. Um, This is, this is like irresistible and so much fun to teach about voles. Voles are these little vole things that run around and there's all these different subtypes and there are mountain voles and prairie voles in the great American West. And they turn out despite like having 99% of their genes in common, they have very, very different social systems in that prairie voles are monogamous they form pair bonds and mountain voles are polygamous. And I always have to remember when I'm teaching this, okay, which one is it? Garrison Keeler. Garrison <laughs> Keeler talks about the great like American values out in Wobegon stuff that's in yeah. the prairie. It's the prairie voles who are monogamous. <laughs> they turn out not to be, but that's, that's what I always have to remember before I mess them up. So, wow. How'd that happen? Cause they're so closely related. They're so, de- and incredibly cool work by like a bunch of neuroscientists over the last couple of decades have completely unpacked that system. When you are a male vole of either species and you're mating, you've released this hormone vasopressin from one part of your brain. And what it does is it buzzes a part of your brain having to do with reward and whoa, they just explained sex feels good. And then it turns out that because of just a gene duplication event, a change in a promoter on a gene, in other words, stuff that like dead white males and lab coats and molecular biology could explain, in the prairie voles, the receptor for vasopressin is more widespread and responsive than the receptor in the mountain voles. So for the same sex act, they get a whole lot more of a buzz. And at that point, like basic behaviorism takes over. Wow, that was great. I think I'll stick around. And instead, mountain voles are nomadic, the males there, and they're like gone the next day. Okay, how do you know this? How do you know this? One of those experiments where like people's mouths have to drop open, brilliant like molecular manipulation, take 
the prairie vole version of this gene and plunk it down into mountain voles and you make them monogamous. You make them monogamous. It's amazing, yeah. I mean, that's the kind of thing I love. I mean, you can't argue with that, right? That's what's great it's, about it. And, okay, so what about us? And what about us? And aren't we monogamous? But what about divorce rates? And what about most societies allow polygamy? And, and there's incredibly convincing evolutionary biology showing that among all the primates, we're right in the middle. <laughs> we're like halfway between being a classic uh, pair bonding monogamous species, the polygamous one. And there's all sorts of interesting ways you can show that. But in terms of this, say, okay, so which version, what kind of vole are we? And it turns out we have different variants. Some of us have one kind, some of us have one another. And that's predictive of things like how stable of relationships you form. That's predictive of things like how close you stand to an attractive person if you're already in a relationship. Oh, my God. It's the same stuff. It's like the same stuff that before it's over with is produced like sonnets or divorce lawyers. So it's, there's very human-specific aspects to it. But, whoa, even that is ultimately mechanistic. Yeah, it's and and so the and and when we come to responsibility, people who are condemned for one way or another, as you point out, a lot of these things are gene variants or affected by expression of genes, epigenetics, which I want to have you explain. The first time I really understood, well, I'm not sure I still understand, but the first time I think I understood it was reading your book. Um, uh, I never could quite understand how, but it's gene expression anyway. But but you you sum this up by saying thus the decisions you supposedly make freely in moments that test your character, like monogamy, let's say, generosity, empathy, honesty, are influenced by the levels of these hormones in your bloodstream and the levels of variance of the receptors in your brain. It's just that, not character. It's those, yeah. it's that. Uh-oh, all that's like uh, fidelity or... If you're in a different society, all of the cultural values built around you should be fine being a third wife, or you should want to get as many camels as possible to get as many wives. And that's how we, that's the kind of people we are. And whether it's one extreme or the other, or one of the ones in between, it's imbued with value and cultural judgment. And that's not it. That said, you know, it's not all what version of the vasopressin receptor gene you have, and those studies showing that, and different human correlates of, it's not everyone, it's just at a higher than expected rate, all, all of our usual provisos there. But if you knew about the vasopressin status, plus three more of the neurotransmitters and seven of the hormones and this and that, mm -hmm. you're getting close to saying, that's why this person is this way instead of that way. Well, again, I think of Dan Dennett again was saying, you, you know, you, it, you can't, you, you may not be able to feel good about your accomplishment, you know, feel you deserve the prizes. And you, and similarly, you might, feeling that you've been a good person is, is, is great, but, um, but you may also realize that it's a genetic bit of luck as well. And or all the other biology. Uh, all of, yeah. Or and historical, genetic historical in fact we'll talk about that i want to so that's so that's so that's minutes to hours you know hormonal 
influence on your actions, which are immediate. But then you, you talk about, you know, weeks to years, really related to neuroplasticity, which I guess I, I guess uh, um, um, uh, is becoming increasingly important. Um, and, um, and you say, uh, to jump to, uh, sort of depressing in a way, to read once again about adolescence and its importance, <laughs> because we, none of us can have control. I mean, when you think about that, that you're, you're doomed, you're doomed in some ways to act the way you are because of the, of some, of a period in your life that you sometimes want to just forget. Um, yes. <laughs> and you say, if you're an adult, your adolescent experiences of trauma, stimulation, love, failure, rejection, happiness, despair, acne, the whole shebang will have played an outsized role in constructing the frontal cortex because you point out that's when it's being constructed. Um, constructing the frontal cortex you're working with as you contemplate pushing buttons. Of course, the enormous varieties of adolescent experiences will help produce enormously varied frontal cortexes in adulthood. Boy, isn't that depressing? <laughs> yeah, but, you know, from my perspective, cool. Yeah, so they it's cool. the epigenetic mechanism for it. Well, you, you actually, but in fact, you point out even a better reason it's not depressing. In some sense, it was a rhetorical question because I, the next page you say, this suggests something remarkable. The genetic program of the human brain evolved to free the frontal cortex from genes as much as possible. Namely, if, if the frontal cortex is being developed during a period of learning, of experiences, in a, in a rational, intelligent, self-conscious species, you'd want that brain function, which really is what's governing much of your rational behavior, I guess, to to be as free from genes as possible to be based on experience so you you are you understand the world as it, it in principle is as opposed to the world that your genetic ancestors uh might have experienced yeah like basically we have evolved genetically more than any other species to be free of our genes and free of their deterministic powers and that's that's, a, that's what that's a great thing. It's not a bad thing. It's allow it's allowed us to get where we are, and and and, and necessary and for us for people for as complex a brain as we have, probably. Well, unless you spend your late adolescence where you're listening to speeches every day by a, a guy with a mustache and a brown shirt and saying, "Here's who's responsible for problems in society," yeah, means formative stuff is happening then and that could be for better or worse in fact for worse you point out that you talk about this ace score which is what's a, a adverse childhood experience score which i guess psychologists psychologists can can get Very by true. looking at all sorts of neglect and household dysfunction and abuse and all of these categories that you may or may not have experienced and you say for every step higher in one's ace score there's roughly a 35% increase in the likelihood of adult antisocial behavior, including violence, poor frontal cortical development, cognition, problems with impulse control, substance abuse, teen pregnancy, unsafe sex, and other risky behaviors, and increased vulnerability to depression and anxiety disorders. Oh, and also poorer health and earlier death. So, <laughs> um, you know, that, that, that impact is, is remarkable. And, and one might say, how does that impact happen? And that's where I may be introducing this too early, but that's this connection between genes and environmental interactions, which I think 
is related to epigenetics. So do you want to explain? I mean, people would say, look, how can this be? The genes are genes. You have a DNA. How can how can experience, it's almost sounds Lamarckian. How can how can experience experience is going to change that chemistry of the of the DNA backbone? So what are you telling me? What get, and so why do you why do you get get around that question and explain it better than I could? Yeah, experience, environment, all of that doesn't change your genes. Your genes that are made up a sequence of DNA and a code, and it it doesn't change your genes. What experience does is change the on-off switches for your genes. How readily you activate a gene, whether you permanently silence it, how readily you activate it under this circumstance, but not that circumstance. What epigenetics is about is the regulation of genes. And it turns out when you look at a species like us, the majority of our DNA is not devoted to the genes. The majority is devoted to the regulatory elements. The instruction manual is much longer than the DNA code itself. And what evolution is mostly about, if you want to get into a nuts and bolts level, is the evolution of the regulatory control far more than the genes themselves. And what environment does is forever after, in some cases, in some cases, even multi-generationally, uh, make it easier or harder to activate certain genes. Yeah, in fact, you say that when it comes to humans, it can be silly to ask what a gene does, which is the kind of thing my elementary bio biology might have asked because I'm, I don't know much. Um, but not you shouldn't ask what that does, but what it does in a particular environment, because it's the turning, it's the expression, it's it's the turning on and off. The genes produce proteins that are, give instructions for production of proteins, and and how when that gets turned on and off, and my also understanding of how impactful those proteins are in subsequent things is also environmentally related. Because some of those proteins are switches that turn genes on or off. Yeah. So you're regulating the regulators and it's regulators all the way down. It's these yeah. recursive loops. Yeah. Okay. I mean, and, and that's, I think, incredibly important to realize that, that that's how, when one thinks of there, there's, I guess, you know, you can say, okay, the luck, there's lucky genes, as people say, born with lucky genes. But when we talk about the spectrum of behaviors for which we think we have free will and the spectrum of people and for which we'll have to take responsibility for good or bad actions, you could say, well, there are two There are two components. There's gene variants. The population has gene variants and some people do have lucky genes and some people have unlucky genes in the sense of getting a variant that, you know, related to vasopressin or whatever. Um, and then there's the other aspect, which I really hadn't fully appreciated is exactly how the environment affects the, the the mechanism by which environment affects uh, gene regulation is the other aspect. So there's there's the there's the variance in genes and the variance in environmental experiences, and it's that combination of those two that determines who you are. Neither of which you had any say in. Nine of which you had any say in. Yeah, exactly. You didn't even get to fill out an application form. Yeah, um, and. Uh, um, and uh, just like you, yeah, in particular, we all realized we didn't have any say in the choice of our parents. And sometimes that's good and sometimes it's bad. I mean, and, uh, and, but it, it goes far beyond that. Um, now you say, okay, that's okay. So that's basic biology, but beyond that, 
we go back more than just years and more just more than just your own life experience but the life experience of your ancestors culture that which that you're irresistible <laughs> it's totally cool uh, <laughs> it's totally cool i'm i'm a dilettante in this area because what do i know from like cultural anthropology or history or stuff but different cultures are different duh yeah uh, and there are historically and biologically and ecologically logical reasons why different cultures wind up in different ways for example like way back when traditional means of production you could be a farmer or you could be a hunter-gatherer or you could be a pastoralist and it turns out that pastoralists all the world over whether it's yaks or camels or goats or whatever are much higher than likely to generate what is called a culture of honor where it's built around retribution, revenge, clan loyalties, feuds that go for centuries, where it involves forming warrior classes, high rates of aggression, all that sort of thing. And whoa, you hardly ever see that among the farmers or the hunter-gatherers. And what's that about? Um, if the bad people come and you're a hunter-gatherer, they can't steal your rainforest. If they come to your farm, they can't steal all your, they can't harvest your crops at night, but sneaky low down varmints can come and rustle your cattle at night. Pastoralists spend all their time raiding each other and stealing their means of livestock. And like in Africa, I hang out near a, a pastoralist tribe and like they have raids on each other and steal all the cows and people have to take revenge and all of that. Among pastoralists, you have a special vulnerability in being nomadic and in your wealth being a bunch of animals that could be stolen. And they all evolve these similar cultures of honor. And where if you do not answer an insult to your honor with twice the retaliation, you're just like losing face and you're dishonoring you and your family and your ancestors and your people and all of that. And that turns out to explain aspects, geographical variations in violence on this planet. Or as another one, another one, people whose ancestors or people who live in rainforests are much more likely than chance to invent polytheistic religions. People who live in deserts are more likely to invent monotheistic ones. And there's all sorts of ecological, you know, if you're living in a forest where there's like a thousand different edible plants that you can use, it's not that surprising that you decide that there's like a spirit inside each one of those different plants and like a thousand flowers blooming. And mm -hmm. like if you're living in the desert, everything gets boiled down to just like survival and very singular things. And big surprise, they come up with singular religions. And you know, people like Jared Diamond have done brilliant work analyzing how it is that this planet was overrun by the desert monotheists rather than the rainforest polytheists. And that's the planet we have now. But that's a cultural difference. And that one influences, like from shortly after birth, where you were being taught, like ethics come from and 
who you were trying to please and whose foot or whose plural feet you'll be sitting at if you do things right and wind up in the in paradise afterward and and that's from culture um, and, it, and i never understood that uh, what what i think is important is is that relates to what we we're just talking about I, in a way that i hadn't really appreciated before i knew that call obviously culture affects people and you know when i talk to people you know they don't seem to get when I talk about religion, isn't it surprising that the children of Christians turn out to be Christian, the children of Muslims turn out to be Muslim? And if there's some universal truth, isn't that a little surprising? Of course, it's a cultural thing. But now you, when you talk about, say, the, the, the pastoralists and, and, and sort of retribution and, and violence, now I kind of, now I'm thinking bi biochemically or neurobiologically. So that experience undoubtedly affects the regulation of genes that, 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 produce aggressive responses. So you can understand the, the, how that culture ends up affecting uh, people whose, whose DNA is the same, but, 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 uh, but, but the regulation of that DNA is, is culturally oh. determined in some sense. And like from a cultural perspective, the job of parents is to make kids who will have the same cultural values as them and translated that into neurobiology is to have their nervous systems constructed in a way that this is what they will carry along. Okay, here's here's like one of the all-time cool experiments, and it's the only time I have seen a, a particular word appear in a scientific journal. This was incredible work by this guy, Richard Nesbitt, University of Michigan, one of the gods of social psychology. And what it was one of those where the psych majors like come volunteer for this experiment and are going to ask questions about whatever and so they go to the psych department and there's the lab they're going to down at the end of the hall and they walk down the hall from the elevator and unbeknownst to them the experiment occurs in the hallway which is it's a narrow hallway all these like shelves and junk and stuff and as they're walking down there's a guy walking at you he's a big beefy guy who's working on the project and what he does is as he comes past you he knocks into your shoulder looks back and says watch it asshole <laughs> this is the experiment yeah. in printer and then what they do is they like you come into the lab and they give you all sorts of scenarios of like moral quandaries and what would you do in response to this? And what you see is people from the North, Northern United States, having been bumped into has no effect on their answers. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, there's the controls where the guy doesn't do that yeah. to you. And people from the South were now far more likely if they were bumped into than not to advocate violent responses to these norm violation scenarios and they elevate their levels of testosterone and stress hormones whoa are you kidding the american south instead of being settled by these nice like quaker Mm -hmm. shopkeepers were settled by these like crazy ass irish scotsman shepherds and stuff and they brought a culture of honor and centuries later, you're walking down a hallway in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and that's going to influence how much stress hormones you secrete and whether you advocate saying, eh, you know, they're just an idiot, but ignore them versus rip their throat out. Wow. This culture stuff persists. Wow. Yeah. It's just, uh, wow. I love these examples. I'm, I'm, that's, I'm really happy with 
it's amazing because you can put meat on all, all of these. You know, the words sound nice, but the meat is what matters. I mean, that's what makes it science. <laughs> and uh, and we talk about, you know, I wrote down education here because you talked about the purpose of parents in some senses to incult, inculcate those values and the, and the cultural things to their children, which is, by the way, the reason I argue that for public education, the purpose of education is to get you away from your parents, in my opinion, which is I could never understand why in the U.S. we have this system where parents somehow are, are supposed to be able to impact on the elevate uh, education of children because that's the, and why I like why I'm not always a big fan of homeschooling because it seems to me that's the great opportunity is to get people away to learn that the world isn't exactly necessarily the way their parents say it is. Yep, exactly. Mm. Except, you know, it's not by chance that the school that your parents are going to send you to um, is going to teach some semblance of their exact same values. You're not going to go to a school if you're growing up in Kansas and they teach you that it is time for the workers of the world to unite and overthrow their chains. And you're not going to go to a school in Kamchatka and they... Yeah. Yeah. So the the parents still get in there. Well, okay. So so this so this we basically it, I don't know whether we've beaten a dead horse, but we've certainly added a lot of color to it. Um, and 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 the uh, the part of the book about intent. You basically say to summarize: in order to prove there's free will, we have to show that some behavior just happened out of thin air. In the sense of considering all of these biological precursors, the ones we've talked about and a lot more, obviously, in the book. It may be possible to sidestep that with some subtle philosophical arguments, but you can't with anything known to science. And I think that's the sort of the key thing. But then when we come to then then when we come to the padding of the uh, on the back, um, the question is, you know, people, um, you know, surely with with grit and hard work you can overcome, you know, the the bad luck of your existence, and um, um, and the and the idea is that. It, it, is that is a misunderstanding of history, which I think you basically say, look, okay, these people are saying, okay, there's no free will. I accept everything you said about hormones and everything. So clearly there's no free will in what you're doing now, but somehow in the past, <laughs> the past, you, there was something you could have done that, you know, to make yourself a better person now. And somehow that, that it's okay. It's somehow we can bury the free will in the past. You want to elaborate on that? Or if you're a particularly fancy compatibilist, somehow in the future, which somehow counts in the present or whatever, it's a notion of like what brought you to this moment and the answer rather than being because of what happened a second ago and a minute ago and an hour and a million years ago in biology all the way, it's because of the key decisions you made back when, which is just... Like, oh, good, they've just explained it by saying the puzzle is now on back when. That's that's what we're now trying to explain. And the trouble is, whatever was in the past once was now. And why did this behavior just happen? Because of one second before, one minute before, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's this, it's one of the, like, dodges <clears throat> in there. I mean, what you're bringing up also... <clears throat> is this totally seductive dichotomy, which is like one compatibilist trick, which most people advocate, is that you'll say, okay, okay, there's some stuff we had no control over. Like, I don't have a voice that could sing opera. Mm -hmm. um, 
I'm not tall enough to play in the NBA. I don't have whatever receptor for whatever neurotransmitter so that I've got this amazing analytical skills, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have our natural attributes and those are biological. Yeah. What isn't? What really matters is what do you do with those attributes? Do you put your shoulder to the grindstone? Do you squander your gifts? Do you, do you like get going when the going gets tough to you? And that's where we've got this incredibly sort of Judeo-Christian temptation to say that, that is the playground of free will and judgment. It's what we do with what we were gifted or cursed. That's the measure of a person. And that's so destructive. I mean, like it's got a nice namby-pamby liberal version of it, which is when your kid does something good, don't tell them, oh, you must be so smart. Say, oh, you must have worked so hard because you're fueling that side of the dichotomy. And and that's a good thing because that has instrumental value, not because it has moral value. But it's this huge dichotomy that the natural attributes we have are made out of atoms. And whether you show backbone in a moment of temptation, that's the stuff that's made out of the fairy dust. And the what you do with what you got, what you do with those crossroads and splits in the road and all those things is made of the same stuff because it's that frontal cortex of yours that decides, are you going to show impulse control? Or are you going to do long-term planning? Or are you going to, and it's the exact same. How did you get the frontal cortex that you have because of one second ago and one minute ago and all of that? And that's why at some point, somebody is going to decide to rob the liquor store. And instead, somebody is going to decide to devote their life to doctors without borders or something. Exactly. The, the point that somehow accepting that the instantaneous moment of, of, of what you're, you know, that, you're, that your local intent at that moment is biological control, but somehow what determined your local intent, which was earlier, isn't biologically determined. It's that, it's that irrationality. I, you know, you do give a, you know, to pick again on <laughs> dead horse, you pick on dead, dead <laughs> a lot, you know, uh, but basically he says that he says, so, you know, when someone, when he argued with someone that we have no control over the biology or the environment thrown at us, then his response was, so what? The point I think you're missing is that our autonomy is something one grows into. It's a, it's a process that's initially entirely beyond one's control, but, Back when it was happening, it was the same biology, so it wasn't it any more. And 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 as one matures, one learns one's being able to control more and more of one's activities. But the whole point is, you just learned that you don't control. I mean, you you don't yes. control them. You you know you you control them, but your control over that of the of that was determined because was was once is. Yeah, exactly. Was was once is. It's so clear when one puts it that way. I, I guess I I, 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 I don't see it. I think the fundamental question, and as a physicist, this is why as a physicist, I, I guess I never have found this whole issue, it seemed to be clear, is that <laughs> fundamentally, everything, everything is determined by a combination of, 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 of nature, which is biology, physics, and chemistry. And none of those have fairy dust in them, not even physics. We'll get to it. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, 
Once you recognize that, then it, then it's clear that 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 free will must be an illusion because because none of those uh, none of those none the 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 physics and chemistry. I know the physics. I know the chemistry a little bit, and the biology less. Um, all of them behave uh, with rules of science that don't allow for that you know that gap in that Sidney Karras ca cartoon. Yeah, exactly, and. An awful lot of people work very, very hard and begin to have almost evangelical incoherence at points where they still manage to pull that out of the hat. There's still a special essence that doesn't obey those rules. Well, it's it's to me, it's very related. Again, having spent a lot of time thinking recently about consciousness, to the same argument as where is the you that exists beyond your brain? I mean, it's the same really argument, isn't it? In some sense, it's a, wh where can that be? If it, you know, th this is what there is. So where's the you if it's not there? And 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 if it's beyond there, then somehow you're, you're invoking some fairy dust to assume that that you is an independent existence. And the version of that that <clears throat> like makes us wet our pants the most is so when someone dies, there's no them anymore. Yeah. Yeah, like that's that's enough to make almost anyone who rejects free will feel a little bit like queasy and dizzy at that point. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Well, and and my you've heard this my argument, and people always say, "What happened to it?" And I, and the argument, which I didn't invent myself, but first was told to me, is you know, what what, what was it like before you were born? <laughs> Just imagine what it was like before you were born, and then that, that and, but. Okay, let's talk about the. But you are here, and and you spend some time on the cognitive prefrontal cortex, which is so important to learning and social uh, uh, socialization and sociality, and how those things are are you know evolved. And um, you talk about the social PFC, the the um, that um, that basically there's two the prefrontal cortex is sort of control mech. I don't know whether you want to think of it as a control mechanism. But it does two things, right? It it kind of inhibits it either it it either encourages or inhibits in, in the right quote unquote right moment. So you want to discuss that a little bit? I guess I guess the key thing I I learned about from your is this two parts of the PFE, and I love saying these things because they make me sound so literate <laughs> biologically. Now I I forget the words almost immediately. That's why I didn't become biologist early on, so I couldn't <laughs> memorize words. I was awful at it. But the, there's the dorsal lateral PFC, and then there's the ventromedial PFC, and there's sort of the the yin and yang, the evil, the devil and the angel on the side of you. Why don't you, why don't you talk about that? <laughs> and and by the way, I probably didn't become a physicist because I couldn't understand the concepts, so <laughs> you couldn't you couldn't memorize the jargon. But uh, well, well, whatever. Yeah, it was just okay. You could have if you wanted to. Anyway. The lateral, let, let's call it the egg heady part of your prefrontal cortex and the ventral medial, your emotional over the top, like hysterical part. Um, ventral medial prefrontal cortex um, is the means by which the more emotional parts of your brain, the limbic system, funnel all of their opinions and quirks and yearnings and legitimate aspirations and stuff and send that information onto the frontal cortex. That's how your frontal cortex is figuring out 
what your gut is telling you, what biases are about to make you make a totally unfair decision. You're, it's the ways in which decision-making is, is influenced by emotion. And that's been a major revolution for the field of figuring out, no, it's not just your like gleaming calculator of a prefrontal cortex that's telling the limbic system, now's the time to give the person flowers. Now's not the time to do whatever because you're going to regret it, that there's as much flow of information from the emotional part of the brain to this egg-heady part of the brain. So the ventral medial, the emotional part of the prefrontal cortex, is getting that information. And amid lots of other areas of the brain there that fumfer around and confer and compare and contrast, and whatever, it's ultimately the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex that's the decider that sends out a message that is four or five steps away from your muscles, that sends out a message that's four or five steps away from telling your muscles not to do that, raising issues of free won't as well as free will. Mm -hmm. And these two areas of the brain are like very pertinent to this. Um, big surprise, the cortex was the last part of the brain to fully evolve evolutionarily. The prefrontal cortex was the last part of the cortex to evolve. The dorsolateral prefrontal cortex was the last part of the prefrontal cortex to evolve. And we proportionally have more of it than any other species out there. <clears throat> so that's where your Calvinistic backbone dwells or your, your terptitude or whatever. And it's the same thing. What kind of dorsolateral prefrontal cortex do you have today? It depends. It depends on what happened a second ago and a million years ago and all of that because stress and stimulation and certain gene variants and the levels of this hormone and the levels of that nutrient and certain cultural more produce different kinds of dorsolateral prefrontal cortices. And this is not just, oh, this is this has to be the case from what like go do imaging and look at the size of these in different people and it reflects all sorts of logical stuff. People who were much better at like doing the right thing when it's the harder thing to do, you go and look and they have a bigger and or a more energetic dorsolateral prefrontal cortex than other people. Damage the prefrontal cortex and you get somebody who can even sit there and tell you the difference between right and wrong. And nonetheless, at every juncture, they're going to do the impulsive, disastrous thing. And just to kind of stop you in your tracks, depending on the study, 25 to 75% of the men in this country on death row have a history of concussive head trauma to that part of the brain. Wow. Uh, we're talking machines here. Yeah. We're not talking souls. Yeah, well, that's right, and 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 why well, that's that's power. That's amazingly powerful. Speaking of the PFC and the experience that you've had, it, it there was a, there's a there was a quote here that made me think. Well, a lot of the quotes made me think. You say all the individual pieces of these findings follow. So, socio socioeconomic status predicts how much a young child's DLPFC, D which is that uh, d whatever it's called. Um, the egghead part. Yeah, the egghead part activates and recruits other brain regions during an executive task. It predicts more responsiveness of the amygdala to physical um, or social threats, a stronger activation signal carrying this emotional response to the PFC by the VM PFC, which is the other, the emotional part of the PFC, I guess. 
and such status predicts every possible measure um, of function in kids. Uh, name, naturally, lower socioeconomic status predicts worse PFC development. This, this does smack when a, a buzzword now is called white privilege, which I have, which I, which is over, well, which I have issues with at some level, but, but we won't go there. But, but this does suggest, I mean, there is privilege and, 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 it, and it's, and yeah. it's undeniable. What it doesn't suggest is that somehow it, it you know, it's, it suggests the world isn't fair, but it doesn't say that you can cure that by then doing something else because it just says, you know, you're stuck with, with the, with the, with, with your, with the experience of your past. And suddenly, you know, society doing these other things is not necessarily going to solve your particular problems. Aha. Um, uh-huh. Here, here is where I have to disagree strongly. Okay, good. Because as it's turning out, very little in your brain is irreversible. Um, that's this whole field of neuroplasticity. Yes. And when you look at how change occurs, an incredibly dramatic change, and explanations for why one out of every 10 or 100,000 of kids who grow up in some appalling circumstance wind up not having that profile yeah. and blah, blah, all of that. Um, change happens. Massive amounts of change can happen. And when you look at how that works, it's exactly as mechanistic as everything else that reinforces the belief that we don't have free will rather than doing exactly the opposite. No, in fact, I, yeah, we're not in agreement because I, I guess what I wanted to say is that appropriately, in fact, that's my out at the last part of this book. I'm going to argue that that appropriately treating the world as if we have free will, understanding that we don't have free will, uh, will allow the kind of positive change that one that is that that is necessary, even personal positive change. We'll we, we'll get there. The, the possibility of change and how you do it can only be effectively done when you understand the mechanisms that le- imply we don't have free will. If you want to understand how, how to affect, you know, we, we talk about, we don't have the ability to determine how, what we wish in some ways, but we can, but with that knowledge, we can, we can, I think allow future development that may change what we wish. So we'll, we'll get there. And I think exactly. that's really important. But but I guess what I was saying is that some of the societal solutions that are proposed, uh, there's inequities, and they're built in inequities in the world. And that's and you're right. We should be trying to address those in a realistic way, and and a realistic way means thinking about the science, and not and not thinking about airy fairy wonderful imaginary solutions. I guess that's 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 my let, uh, let alone nationalistic myths of equal yeah. opportunity. Yeah, exactly. You got it. Anyway, so the, so I think that the the I love your summary uh, uh, part. Of basically, the takeaway is that it's impossible to successfully exactly. This is what I was going to. I was looking for this quote and was right in front of me. It's impossible to successfully wish what you're going to wish for. This chapter's punchline is that it's impossible to successfully will yourself to have more willpower, and that it. It isn't a great idea to run the world on the belief that people can and should. I, and that's important. But I want to come back to that because I think that does leave this will, this loophole that while you can't successfully will yourself to have more willpower, 
what you can do is potentially with that knowledge and the recognition that people can learn and change, you can imagine ways to, in the future, adjust yourself to, 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 to have characteristics that you might prefer to have. And, exactly. and that's really important. But you can only do it if you realize the real science behind it, which is that it's not, you don't do it by just strength of character. You do it by thinking of the kind of things that change people for better or worse. And, and, and so I think that's really important. And if in addition to that, you're lucky enough to wind up in life where you can listen to a lecture. Yeah, exactly. That's the whole point. I mean, learning actually works. Otherwise, you and I, if we didn't think that, I don't think you and I would have been doing what we, well, we might have anyway. But, uh, but, um, <laughs> but we, you know, it's that aha experience. In fact, somewhere in the book, you say how devastating it is to find something you fundamentally believe in is wrong. And I've always said I found it the most energizing thing in the world. I hope everyone, my, my goal in higher education is that every student has something that they fundamentally believe is central to their being proved to be wrong. And that's the purpose of education, I think, because it opens your mind. Well, I think, as I said before, you're made of more resilient stuff than me. So maybe, good going. Maybe. Yeah, well, yeah, what maybe in that aspect, but I'm, I'm still, <laughs> I still feel, I still envy all the other aspects of you. Anyway, um, and 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 I find them remarkable in ways. I always find when people do things that I couldn't think of even doing in principle. And and you're full of that. But anyway, let's. And we've already okay. Enough of that. Um, <laughs> okay, I want to get to chaos and determinism, and then I want to get to the to the to sort of the the emotional heart of this, which is which is responsibility in the second half of your book. But so you, the argument, it, look, it comes down to this. Okay, people say, yeah, yeah, all that's true. But nature has these weird characteristics. And one is chaos, that the world is chaotic and, and, and unpredictable. And, um, um, and, and that's, there's the out, there's the magic, there's the magic out because the world is unpredictable, either because when you never have more than two bodies, and as you describe nicely here, um, uh, you have you have chaotic systems. You can't you can't you can't predict the future of a three body system, which is amazing when you think about it. It just the first time I learned that was amazing. And I will give a plug, by the way. I, I um, uh, uh, Timothy Palmer wrote a book called um, um, uh, something 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 of doubt, which I just actually we had a. He's a physicist. He's a climatologist. It's a great book on chaos and 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 understanding its implications for not just not just climate science, but behavior and all sorts of other things. I highly recommend you take a look at it. And, I, I don't know if you saw it, but in some recent issue of Science or Nature, there was a paper entitled something like "A Statistical Solution to the Three Body Problem," which, of course, I immediately turned the page because I was not going to understand a word of it. I. <laughs> assume it really has not solved the three body problem no, statistically well yeah i mean but it i mean a statistical solution is chaos especially if they're if they're if there are you know strange attractors you can ask what's the likelihood of the system's going to end which is what meteorology is all about what's the likelihood that and and you do that by running computer simulations many times over and you see where it goes because you can't a priori do it you change the initial conditions and anyway um but chaos implies and you, you you go into this that 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 for many systems small changes extremely small changes in initial conditions can produce dramatic changes 
in uh, outcomes can don't don't always not don't must but can and that's an important thing too they don't always but they can and that seems to be suggests that somehow there's this there's this out and um and and i think i don't know what you say here but basically i i paraphrase this saying not being able to so this is an anti-reductionist argument, and 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 as as a as a reductionist, it's always amusing for me to see the anti-reductionism as, as someone who's tried to understand the fundamental structure of matter. It's always amusing um, because I'll argue later, uh, um, emergent complexity I think is reductionism in a different form. But but um, not being able to trace things to their fundamental constituents, not being able to go back to the fundamental constituents to be able to say how a system is going to behave is not an out. You want, and and may, let, I'm going to let, let you give your explanation, and then I want to add something to it from physics. Oh, good. So, um, because every single person who says chaoticism is totally cool and unexpected and revolutionary is completely right. And every one of them who then says, and this is where you could find free will, is wrong because they always make the same mistake. They think that systems that are unpredictable are undeterministic. And that's the get out of free, get out of jail free card that they think they're pulling out at that point. And there is a universe of differences between determinism and predictability. Chaotic systems, which occur in like molecules and cells and brains and societies and universes, chaotic systems are deterministic, or is that deterministic is the most like old time clock with gears, but because of the nature of the interactions going on are not predictable. And unpredictable does not mean you can pull free will out of that. That's the key point you make. And I think very important is that un unpredictable is not not deterministic they the three body system is 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 governed by newton's laws there's nothing more predictable than that they're the same things that made the world that ended the burning of witches when made it seem like the world was comprehensible by by mathematics and 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 causes had effects and um and effects had causes uh uh yeah but but they're unpredictable but let me add for for your ammunition as i was thinking about this it occurred to me the exact, this almost the strongest version I can think of this is thermodynamics. Because there, I can't predict, there's no way I can predict where the atoms in this room are or what the, you know, for many reasons. There's no way. But there's nothing stronger than the second law of thermodynamics. Okay, which says, even it's all totally unpredictable, but it's, but it governs the world. There's a law that you can't break, and every time people try and do it, they create perpetual motion machines because they try and avoid the second law of thermodynamics. And much of life is trying to avoid it. When I look at my study um, every day, it's trying to avoid it. And and yet, there's nothing more, there's nothing stronger that got, nothing more deterministic than the second law of thermodynamics. Yet it's based on the fact that I can, it's based on the fact that I'm I have a system that's at a fundamental large-scale level, unpredictable. Uh, You're never going to be able to say exactly where it's going to be puffing out. But by definition, if you've just climbed up a mountain, the bag of potato chips you brought with you are going to be like bulging outward. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's it's uh, it's incredibly important that 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 um, 
that uh, that we that it's it's the basis of the world we live in. We, physics works for a world that's chaotic and unpredictable because because it is deterministic. Because there are certain things you can say with certainty, and the, one of them is that a closed system in a closed system, the entropy of that system is going to either remain the same or increase. Uh, and 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 so and that's deterministic. That's a rule. That's a law and a law that can't be violated in spite of the unpredictability of the specifics of that system. And and that's why I guess where I come from in physics. So, yeah. Okay, for the first time in my life, I'm going to start using the word thermodynamics. <laughs> Great, that's exactly, oh, good. Yeah, exactly. Now, and you can, and you're, just like I'm going to say, I'm going to remember that dorsolateral or whatever PFC <laughs> and make myself sound good too. Okay. Um, one... We'll come to. I want. I want to jump ahead because you point out that we have developed. Okay, so that in 1922, uh, um, people would have said that you know someone who began shoplifting, um, you know, and urinating in public behaved a certain way because he chose to. In 2022, we now say they behave that way because of deterministic mutations of one gene in in, in this particular example. And you point out that that um, so in in if if that I, I forget what you say but if 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 free will is determined by what we know, by level of ignorance there's something wrong if an instance of free will exists on only until there's a decrease in our ignorance so it's free will until we understand it and then it's not free will anymore and and as i say that's exactly the god of the gaps argument exactly you know, you know thunderstorms are God, and then we understand thunderstorms, and where's the room left for God? You, it's it's not, a, even theologians understand it's not a good argument for trying to put God there, because that shrinks. And I don't understand why the free will people don't realize that shrinks each time we learn more about how systems work. Um, yes. Emergent complexity is interesting, because um, the argument, and, 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 and I, I've, you know, I've seen in, in physics, there's this debate because these people say, oh, well, you know, particle physics, you know, these fundamental laws, okay. But really, the really interesting stuff is the stuff that you can't explain at this reductionistic level. It's all the fascinating structures. It's how oatmeal boils. It's, 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 uh, <laughs> it, and, and, and that, that, and, you know, and, and there are things, you, you know, obviously the understanding things at a microscopic level don't necessarily help you understand. And there's lots of, and you give examples of emergent complexity, in particular in neuronal systems. Um, and, um, but it's, again, it's not clear why that, that, um, that reflects anything. The fact that you can't trace the end result from fundamental constituents is once again, uh, ignoring the fact that, 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 unpredictability is not the same as indeter as indeterminacy and um exactly. and evolution itself in some sense it seems to me when i when i was reading it some thoughts occurred and i wanted to run them by you i mean you know it's no great mystery i mean snowflakes are in some sense emergent complexity you take the fundamental polar interactions of molecules and who would have thought they'd form these beautiful Christmas-like patterns, but but more than that, um, uh, evolution itself, in some sense, is a 
because you point out that the whole point of 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 emergent complexity is that the individual constituents are just doing their own little thing without knowing what the whole system is doing and somehow the whole system goes in a certain direction and that's a remarkable statement but okay so what um and you know but i don't you i want to ask you don't you see i mean i see evolution as exactly that so, biological systems evolve not because there's some they're heading in some direction or because globally something's happening it's because the individual system sort of might be a genetic mutation and near neighbor nearest neighbor interactions reproduction and, and other things are going to drive the system in a way that may you know in response to natural selection will will create a, a, an organism that has beautifully structured existence to make it look like they were designed Exactly. And that's totally cool and amazing. And emergent complexity makes me so happy. I can't even begin to tell you that. And it's the greatest in all of that. But this is not a playground either, where suddenly you can pull free will out of it. Because once again, it's built around the confusion of predictability and determinism. And the people who try to sidestep it and still somehow get free will out of it, always do the same trick that their model requires once you've established an emergent level of something unexpected, that emergent level can reach down and change the constituent parts. And if and only if there's 10,000 ants and they have formed like a complex society, like each individual ant now can like solve the traveling salesman problem on a piece of paper. No, the whole point of emergent complexity is that the stupid, simple little building blocks are still just as stupid and simple, but because there's enough of them, out of it has come something amazing and complex and adaptive. But in order to pretend you've pulled free will out of it, you've got to assume the system works in a way that it can't, that it doesn't. Exactly. Okay. And now let me throw something out at you, which I only realized in the context of reading that description of yours, which I'm going to use now whenever I hear people throw emergent complexity at me. <laughs> that emergent complexity is an extreme form of reductionism. Because emergent complexity is just saying, right, reductionism is saying the world, the complicated world is based on simple principles, a few quarks, four forces, put them together and look what happens. Emergent complexity is saying exactly the same thing. The fundamental constituents aren't knowledgeable about the whole world. They're not complex. They're very simple. They have a few simple behaviors, a few simple properties that are restricted to. And out of that simplicity comes this amazing complexity. So it's the ultimate force. It's the ultimate form of reductionism, it seems to me. Exactly. And the only reason... And it's reductionism, which when you put enough pieces together becomes unpredictable, but you haven't like escaped from the laws of reductionism. And the only reason why emergent complexity is interesting, separate of a, because sometimes it's really surprising and beautiful, is that understanding some phenomena, it makes more sense to try to get it at that level than at the more reductive level. It's just more convenient. Yeah, exactly. And but physics is also based on that. I, I, most people have written about it in one of my books. Most people don't realize physics does exactly that. The law, there's no, the laws of physics are not, there's no law of physics as universal. So you, you discuss the laws that are appropriate to the scale at which you're exploring phenomena. 
And that's a, that was a revolution in our thinking about physics. And we actually have the mathematical underpinning of that, something called the neuron, neuron normalization group. It doesn't matter. But that, that, that it's appropriate if, if, you're, you know, if, you're a, if you're a psychologist, if you're a behavior psychologist or a neuroscientist, it's ridiculous to try thinking about quark interactions. It's not going to get you anywhere. Um, and so it's, and, but the same is true in physics. It's not a new phenomenon that, it, that you talk about the, the f- appropriate interactions at the scale at which you're looking at. And that's just another, you know. And, and you do that because you eventually want to finish your thesis and get a degree. Exactly. It's like the most accessible level. Yeah, you want to, yeah, you want to, you want to, exactly, you want to get results. And then that's what science is all about. Find a way to get results that work and that, and that you can test. And um, nothing more fundamental than that. Um, but you point out, I mean, this, this thing you just said, that some level you have to reach down in order to find that miracle, in order to find that way, you, the, the emergent complex system has to reach down and change the properties of the fundamental constituents. But neurons are still neurons, independent of what, whatever, and the, the mechanisms, neurons are going to change no matter how complex the system there's in, their fundamental inter- interactions are going to be the same. And I, I, I can't help but say this, there's a whole chapter based on this, and it seems to me you must be doing it because that's where all the philosophers are hanging their hats without yeah. saying it. Somehow they're all saying just that without having, without explicitly saying it, because when you explicitly say it, it, it sounds ridiculous. And, and I can't help but think you must have for much of your life had to counter those philosophers or, or at least hear those philosophical arguments. Um, that's really seductive. Yeah. Um, and that's what it pivots around. And like I, I stole this metaphor from someone, ooh, an emergent feature of water molecules is water molecules are not wet until there's a whole lot of them. That's an emergent property. However, water is made of two hydrogens and one oxygen. It's not the case that once things get wet, it's sustained because it's now two oxygens and one hydrogen. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Okay, uh, we will now move to quantum mechanics, but you'll be happy to know we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna gloss over it be, for many reasons because I think it's a red herring in the first place. Um, and you point out how it's a red herring for for biological reasons, which I'm aware of. And I I had a big debate once on stage with Mr. Hammerov about this, but um, uh, uh, yeah, but yeah, I know where I explained he didn't have the slightest understanding of what quantum mechanics was all about. But um, but the idea is, people say, look, quantum mechanics is indeterminate because it, it has a fundamental indeterminacy that you perform an experiment and the results are probabilistic. You can't say with certainty, in some cases you can, but in many cases you can't say with certainty what the result, you can only say probabilistically what the result of an experiment will be. And suddenly that fundamental indeterminacy appears to give you a way out. Um, Let's give your arguments for why that's irrelevant, which is basically two, I think. I want to summarize them. One, that um, it, that randomness is not, a, is not a good explanation of free will. And two, that when you actually think of the mechanics of the brain, the scale at which quantum mechanical effects might come about, which is something I've recognize too but that the scale at which they might be relevant is vastly different than the scale it's going to be 
cause an activation potential to or a, or a whole slew of things to happen to make a decision. They're vastly different scales. So why don't you elaborate for a second, and then I'll say explain why I don't think any of that matters anyway. Um, because I, I had never heard this phrase before before starting to read about this stuff. The brain is a moist, noisy environment, yes. which was very picturesque to me and kind of like unsettling and, and yeah. a little bit yucky. Um, but I guess like for stuff at the quantum level to have any hope and hope in this case comes with like 23 zeros after yeah. it, any hope of being able to impact macro events, it requires a synchrony it requires all of these random events to be random in roughly the same way all at once. And it can't work that way statistically. And it especially can't work that way in moist, noisy environments like biological stuff, because what they're very good at is collapsing sort of the indeterministic features. Yeah, the collapse away from, yeah. I mean, that's the arguments that are presented that those words are are, are problematic but the but the idea is exactly that that you know i, I face it because people talk to me well well look at all this quantum entanglement and quantum teleportation when well, maybe we'll be able to send people from here there i would book about star trek as you know and and um and um and the point is the only reason we can do that is we have to it is quantum mechanics is so weird it because we don't experience it we don't experience it because uh, we don't, we're not quantum, we're, we're, we're classical beings and our, we are exist at a level where the quantum mechanical aspect of reality is hidden. It's an amazing thing that we humans even discovered that it's there, that, that in order to illustrate these quantum mechanical things, you have to pre very carefully prepare systems and unbelievably carefully prepare systems. That's why Nobel prizes are given out for these things. It's hard to do so that you get, so that you can isolate the weirdness of quantum mechanics. Otherwise it's not there. If it was quantum mechanics, wouldn't seem so strange, it, it, but it, 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 it's, it, it's, it's not there because you know, you can't teleport a human because a human is in a very carefully prepared state of two photons where you work very hard and you isolate it from the environment all the time it's happening. So there are no further interactions, which destroy quantum correlations and all of the rest. And um, I mean, it is surprising that there are in biological systems, places where quantum coherence ex exists where you wouldn't have expected it to, you know, maybe in photosynthesis, for example, but, but that's different than, than brain function, which is an incredibly noisy environment and not just noisy, but the scale over which quantum fluctuations, even if they can happen, could happen is vastly different than the scale where the important things related to neuronal processes and activation potentials and decisions and uh, are, are made. Okay, so that's I think that's really important. But the but the but the thing I want to stress to you is quantum mechanics isn't indeterminate. So that whole argument is wrong in the first place. People oh. get it wrong. Quantum mechanics is, is determinate. Quantum mechanics is based on a second order differential equation, Schrodinger equation. Second order differential equation says if you give me the initial and it's a second order differential equation for the wave function, not for an observable, but it says you define it here and for all just like Newton, for just like the three body problem for all future times I can calculate exactly with 100% certainty what the wave function is going to do at least in principle and practice I might not be able to. It's an incredibly it's completely deterministic. Now it is true that when you try and make measurements 
those are probabilistic, but the underlying mechanism of quantum mechanics is completely deterministic. And so the fact that the resu results are, are probabilistic is, is just a red herring. And the example I would give you, I think, which I think is probably, you know, so people say, oh, maybe there's some accidental activation here that changes your view here. And that, that gives you an out because of quantum mechanics. The, the example that I think is really important is, is radioactivity. Radioactivity happens because of quantum mechanics. So I can't tell you when a given uranium atom is going to decay. But I can tell you with exact certainty that the laws of nature is determined that when what the behavior of the radioactive system is going to be and how many of the, I, I can't tell you which one, but I can tell you with certainty, you know, if it's big enough system, exactly how many of them are going to be decaying at any instant. And so while it appears as if you have that indeterminacy, it's, it's really, a, it's really a, a, a red herring. The system is as determined as, as in, in large scale as anything else. And radioactivity is a, is a perfect example. If, if, a radioact if uranium atoms, you put a bunch of them together, are going to have a well-known decay rate, the same is going to be true for, for neurons in your brain or anything else. It's going to, they're just as prescribed. So I would, if, if you had told me that I would not have had to have faked my way through writing two chapters on it. No, but on the other hand, it's good. The, way, but it. it's, the fact that you were forced to do it is useful because then you were able to discuss the things you know, which is the processes in the brain and illustrate those, which I can't do. Illustrate exactly how, how implausible, even if it were true, how the, the processes that determine free will in your brain aren't going to be affected by quantum mechanics. And, um, and um, anyway... Well, we're now going to talk, we're going to now spend the last half hour or so talking about the last half of your book. It's really not the last half, so I feel better. It's like the last third, <laughs> um, and uh, which I, which I, <laughs> which gave me solace when I realized how much I had left to read when I, when I, when I, before I got to the end. Um, uh, the, the, um, the, the, you know, question of, of what we do about this, but, but part, so, so given that, given that, it's undeniable that the that the world that, that we don't have free will based on science. That there's no loopholes. There's no places for the magic to occur. Um, why do we have the illusion of free will? And why is that a good thing? You ask of that at the very beginning of this. And and the, and it seems to me, you know, all right, you have mentioned too. It's, there's an obvious reasons, right? Because because it allows us to function effectively the illusion of free will allows us to go about from if, whether we're early hominids or not um to go about living the life creating the illusions that allow us to live our daily lives and evolution therefore picks us we don't have the choice we don't have the choice to not believe in free will if we want to be psychiatrically resilient um, one of my favorite definitions of clinical depression is it's a pathological failure of the ability to rationalize away reality. That's great. Oh, I like that. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, and, and, and here's the point. When I say we have no choice, we have a, well, we don't have a choice, but we can be, we can learn intellectually. We can learn every time I'm going to say I have a choice. I'm going to say we can learn. 
if we're <laughs> exposed to the right teachers at the right time in the right place, um, we can learn intellectually that free will doesn't exist. You and I can learn that. But that does not mean that we emotionally, since reason is a slave of passion, that in our daily lives, we don't go about our daily lives every day, but because we're, we're, you know, we function func well enough to be integrated in society, that we don't go around behaving like everyone else, like we are making choices and we're, and, and, and we're doing that. So, it, so it's, so, but it's the same as saying, you know, the fact that evolution requires us in some sense to believe in free will is the same as saying, well, evolution may, you know, in principle suggest, you know, it's okay to, you know, kill your neighbor under certain conditions, but we do have learning that allows us to override, at least intellectually override that, that fundamental evolutionary um, remnant. So, 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 so I think the second half of your book in large sense is about how we understand, override, and utilize it to make a world which isn't bad. It may seem <laughs> like it's bad, and 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 um, um, and and uh, so um, if I go to um, so you you know you summarize basically saying yeah well I don't think we need to summarize anymore biological turtles all the way down. But what do we do with that? And the first question is, you know, will we run amok? Because the first thing you can think of, it's the same as the question people have with atheists. If we don't have free will, then why, then why care? Then why should we try and be good? Why should we, why, why should we, you know, let's just do what we do. And we, you know, I'm not responsible for what I do. So who cares? And I think just like for atheism, I mean, you could have that attitude, but I think the thing you point out is that that even that that's not a natural consequence of accepting the 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 absence of free will any more than accepting that there's not a God. If you look at the statistics and you look at the data, is not does not prime us naturally behave quote unquote immorally. That that. Um, that when you actually look at the data, people who 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 don't believe in in in, in a god uh, generally um, don't behave any more immorally than and often sometimes more ethically than people who do. I want to let you elaborate on that. Which is uh, thank God because that solves the running amok problem. The literature. There's been like a handful of studies about the ethical implications of making people believe more or less in free will. But there's a massive literature on the relationship between ethical behavior and belief in deities and stuff. And it's exactly what you show, um, in part because a lot of the time religious people are telling you about how ethical they're being and a lot of the time you're measuring things as being ethical which don't really matter to atheists um, and all sorts of other confounds in there but the most interesting thing about that literature is exactly paralleled in the free will one you know, prime someone to believe less in free will for the next 10 minutes and they cheat more on a on a mm -hmm. economic game. And and even though it's not clear if that really does happen all the time, but get someone 
who hasn't believed in free will for a long, long time, and they're as exactly as ethical as someone who really believes in the very heart. And the religion equivalent is one that, like, I don't know, I, I get some sort of almost transcendent something out of. Um, when you look at people who have thought long and hard about where does goodness come from and what sort of person I want to be and what does this all mean and why are we here? And all, if they've thought long and hard about it, it almost doesn't matter if their conclusion is, and there's no free will, or there's no God, or if their conclusion is, there's a God with all these attributes, um, on the average, they're going to be more ethical than other people because they've thought long and hard. And it's the doing that that's almost certainly the guarantee because you care about what counts as the right way to live your life enough to have thought long and hard about it and enough to have had a moment of crisis and enough to have felt lonely because there's no God or enough to. Yeah, it's because that stuff matters to you enough to have thought about it and to have thought about how you feel about it. And that's what it's about. We're not going to run amok. If we train kids and people with as much value-laden ideas about why are you the way you are and why did this person become the way they became, as we invest in theological or agentive arguments about it, um, it would be we're not going to run amok. You know, and here's a psychological experiment I've done. Because um, I've, you know, with the atheist thing, not the free will thing, with, you know, you give, a, you give the standard, you know, somewhere the standard dialogue, you know, how we trust you atheists to be moral if you don't think God holds. And if you, you know, um, um, uh, and, and what, when I hear that, I always ask the question, and, and I've done this to an audience and only once did, did, did someone come up, where I say, okay, if you didn't believe in God, would you go and kill your neighbor right now? It, and, 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 you know, and generally, except for one exception where someone put up his head and said yes, um, you know, people say no because they have reason. They have thought. They, you know, they have, and, and that's, and by the way, that's Steve Pinker's argument for why God is redundant. Because, you know, if, God's, if God said rape and murder was, of innocent people was okay, would it be okay? And, 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 and most people say no. And then you say, well, and then Steve Pinker would say, well, just get rid of the middleman. You don't need the God <laughs> to say it. But I think the point is, if you ask people, okay, just imagine you didn't believe in God, would you then, you know, steal from your neighbor, you know, uh, beat your kids? Uh, uh, and people, you know, and, and they, when I think about it, they realize that it's not, even if they think it's their belief in God, even if that's what they're telling them, uh, fundamentally, if they have reason, they 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 think of all the reasons why they shouldn't be doing the bad behavior anyway, and, and it's it's superfluous. And I think the same you know is true of free will. Ultimately, the if you think of about reason and rationality, you're gonna the behavior is gonna be the same regardless of whether you believe in free will or not. So that's my little psychological. Memory. You try it in your class sometimes to see if 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 anyone would. But, Sounds good to me. Yeah, uh, you know, but you give the example, of course, of Scandinavia. Everyone's perfect example of idyllic society is having problems now. But, but, um, but, 
you know, that there's a, you know, a secular society where people on the whole are, you know, better behaved and, and more and more generous, blah, blah, blah. We won't go into it. You give a lot of examples. I would argue that part of the reason is the same reason I'm invigorated by the fact of lack of meaning in the universe is that if you focus on the here and now, if the here and now is all there is, then you pay much more attention to the here and now. And, yep. and, and if you pay much more attention to the here and now, and you're rational, you're going to begin to behave in a, in a, in, on, on the whole in, in, a, in, a, in the, kind of be, the kind of, you might say, ethically good behavior that happens naturally. So, so getting rid of the, here, of the hereafter, and, and instead of thinking of now as the all that is, 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 is actually a positive motivator to behave well, not a negative one. Exactly. Yep. Now, and you do point out that religion, your religion t generally tends to have people treat people better, but only in their in-group. And now the world is an example of that. But again, I would argue that that's not so much a problem of religion. We ran once uh, uh, in my institute, I ran a workshop in the origins of xenophobia. But surely, I mean, that's again, something over which we don't have control, right? Even at the biological level, the immune system is the is the very basis of xenophobia, right? As as beautiful way of stating it. Yeah, I mean, you know, and and if if it works for single celled animals and immune system, and you know, it's it, it, it's a natural thing. We have to overcome it as rational beings, just as we have to ultimately overcome our illusion of free will. Um, it's the same thing, and so yeah, I don't blame religion for that. I blame um, evolution. Um, but, but here's where, um, you, you, I see hope in where it's sometimes in where you see, um, despair, maybe, I don't know whether it's really that strong. You have a great section on how we learn. I mean, it's beautiful. I never knew, I knew about Eric Kandel, but I never, I never, I never knew these beautiful diagrams and it's just a lovely way of learning about the neurobiology of how learning happens. It's just beautiful, just spectacular. And then you find out like this is occurring in sea slugs, it's the same molecules in us. It's unbelievable. That's the same molecules in sea slugs and us. Which is why learning about how change occurs not only shows you that that's not incompatible with dropping free will, it, it proves that you can see the building blocks. You can, you can see the building blocks are exactly the same, and you can see how learning... Exactly. You can see that it's not some, again, it's not a mystery. It's a, I mean, it's at some level it is, but I mean, at the fundamental basic level, you can see how naturally it's possible for a system. And not only that, you can see how that neurobiology of learning is affected by stress and conditioning, because you can see when these, you know, how these neurotransmitters are going to be, whether they're going to be expressed or how well the system is going to receive them and respond to them are based on environment. And so you can see exactly how, how environment and, and past experience will affect learning as well. But you see, that's where the fact that change happens is for me, the great hope, because I guess I see, I've often said, and now I, I don't know whether I'll, uh, you know, and I guess I'd say I call this better living through chemistry. Um, but which is really what's happening is is thinking about how the world really works can give us more effective ways of producing a better world than 
living under the illusion that it works other ways. And, um, and so let me give you my, my thinking on this, and I want to see what you think, what, what you think about this, that I've, as I was about to say before, I've often said, and I don't know if I'll say it anymore, that we live in a world in which there's no free will, but for all intents and purposes, it's a world that is identical, it looks identical on the surface to a world in which there is free will. So it, it, and what I said following that, and now I'm going to change what I say, I think, I said, and therefore it makes sense to behave as if we have free will. Now, in some sense, I, I, I think that's still true, but now I would amend that. I would say it's, all, it's, it's indistinguishable on the surface from a world in which there is free will, but, but we should behave in a way that understanding that, that that's, a, that's, that's an illusion but reproducing it in a positive way by realizing that there isn't free will. Namely, we, can, we may not have choice to now of what we wish to do, and this is what I was saying earlier, but by learning, we can change. And therefore, if we realize we don't have free will, we can say, how can I be a better person? Well, let me think of the, of the neurobiological influences that I can have today, tomorrow, and the next day, so that the day afterwards, when I think of the antecedents that cause me to behave a certain way, those new antecedents will be will, will allow me to act better than it was now. And so I see recognizing change and only understanding that there's no free will is a way to actually do what you're thinking you're doing by free will, namely be, becoming a better person. Cool. And there goes Dennett down the drain, among other things. That's that's beautiful. I mean, amid that is our grounds for hope, um, and that is our grounds for like neural plasticity. Things can change. Things can change in awful directions. Someone who was open-minded and tolerant back when is now a bitter old whatever. Um, but it can go in opposite directions as well. And understanding not how to change yourself, but understanding the circumstances in which you will be changed in a beneficial way is a very good thing. And it's, it's, and it's the effective way of doing it. It's if you, you can only do it effectively if you understand how it happens. And if you have this illusion that you have a choice, then you'll probably never be able to effectively change. Well, you might be able to, but but it's an accident. And 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 it's. I think it's not just true. And and you've illustrated between say 1922 and 2022, it's not just the case in an individual level. It's the case in a societal level. By learning, so, well, you know, you and I are devoted. I think to learning. It's 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 an education. We can. That is a way to affect our understanding and our behavior in a way that makes not just us better individuals, but society as a whole better. So we don't draw on quarter people. We don't have public hangings, um, even though we wreck, but we can only do that once again. And you, you, you have an amazing chapter on, which is scary on retribution and, and punishment to show that we love it. And, and, but once again, knowing that we love it is the same thing as knowing that we don't believe in free will. That's okay. Knowing it gives you the opportunity to overcome that. 
to overcome that it's hardwired in one way and to know how to up change your environment in a way so that you don't you don't enjoy punishment as much yeah it lets you figure out like the joy of retribution okay how much does it weigh what does it smell like does it do more of this or that in this circumstance here's how we could turn brutally violent people into people who will be like really aggressive sons of bitches when they play chess yeah yeah when they play chess exactly and you talk and and you talk about it, it's really hard you talk about scandinavia but you know you people want to punish people who've done really bad things but of course and and this is this is where i would also sort of di differ in at least semantically describing things I think you would say people don't have responsibility for their actions in a fundamental sense. And I would say we should treat them as if they have responsibility, but that doesn't involve punishment. Okay, if I run someone over, I ran them over. There's no denying that fact. I'm responsible for the fact that they got run over. Now, I may not have had control over that, but then the response to that is saying, okay, you're responsible. What can we do to ensure that that doesn't happen again that should be the the response not i'm going to slap you on the head but you are respond i would say you are responsible but the but if we understand where it comes from the 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 response to that responsibility is a very different one it's to say how can we ensure sure if you have schizophrenia we have to probably ensure that you're not in a position to hurt other people not punishment and if there's a treatment we have responsibility to, to treat. Um, you're you're just you're dichotomizing between what you're calling responsibility and control. Yeah, uh, I would use a dichotomy between mechanistic responsibility and moral responsibility, but it's the exact same thing as what you just said. Yeah, yeah, and 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 well, and but you talk about it, you know, and I think your argument about quarantine is a lovely one. You talk about the origin of the word, and you really, in some, you're really quarantining people just as you'd quarantine people who have another kind of sickness in a way that protects others around them, but not as punishment. You know, you're not keeping a kid at home from school as punishment if they have a cold. You're doing it, you know, for other reasons. And, um, and that, and this quarantine, which can be, in, 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 as you say, what is punishment, punishment, which is a lovely word in Scandinavia, where you think that, you know, tr taking people who've done horrific things, like you give the example, of this well-known serial killer, the guy who killed all those people on that island in in in, in Sweden, um, was Sweden or Norway? I can't remember. Anyway, it's one of those Nordic countries. Yeah, Norway, I think. Um, and what they did put him in jail and and put him in a in a in an environment where he is, you know, a nice environment to live in. And and their attitude is, you know, um, let's see if we can make sure he he he, he you know whatever conditions cause him to do that again cause him to do that won't happen again which is a very rational thing to say although most of us you know many people intrinsically emotionally want to say kill the bastard draw and quarter the bastard do this you know and um and what Scandinavian culture has produced as the response to the horror of him is that instead of a visceral desire to make him hurt what all those interviews of parents of etc showed was a visceral desire to be able to say yeah, we never have to think about this guy again. His yeah. grandiosity. Yeah. He's a clown. He's a violent clown, but good. He's a way we never have to think about him again. 
That's what their culture has been able to detour the viscera of grief. And if we we think about it logically, I think we can say we can direct our culture in that direction. I mean, even we don't have the, so yeah, we naturally might, our, our inclinations and our experience might not make us want to do that now, but understanding how change happens, the very thing that you some sense say is depressing to me offers great hope. In fact, the only hope I think ultimately to get better is to understand how the world really works. If you don't understand how the world really works, it's an accident if if you improve it. It's a complete accident. And and right. I, I guess I would I would phrase I'm giving you words that may be useful, but I it, when I read your stuff, I thought it's this almost sounds like a the kind of thing some self-help artists would say, but I think it's true. The, the change we want doesn't come from within, it comes from without. The change we, we want is going to come from without, is going to put ourselves in circumstances which can cause a change. It's not going to come from willpower we don't have because we didn't have it in the first place. Now, how to become the sort of person who is able to put themselves in a different circumstance. Yeah. The last two things, and I want to go another two or three minutes. You've been great, or maybe five minutes. I want to come back to Dan Dennis about not during, during praise for accomplishments, which you mentioned, which I thought was, it is hysterical. As, as if that's what it's all about, then what are we talking about it for? But, but more than that, I actually, I, again, I'm going to present myself as a devil's advocate. I don't think we disagree. But I would say that accomplishments, we don't deserve praise for the accomplishments. It's the same... We go back to the ancient Romans, you know, who separated the artist from the art. Um, which I, when I first learned that, I used to like ancient history, and I was amazed. It seemed so foreign to me, but it's again so obvious. I thought, well, okay, so this is the artist, big deal. They would say God, you know, it, 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 he's, God is speaking to them, but that doesn't make this person particularly good. But what we can do is we can say accomplishments can be recognized as amazing. And you can be recognized as amazing if you're brilliant or, you know, it, it's not something that intrinsically means you're good or we have to pat on the back for, but we can say, yeah, let's recognize you're an amazing person. It's nothing wrong with that. You've achieved something amazing. Let's all celebrate that. So I, I guess I can. Instrumental. What was that? Only if it's instrumental, only if it inspires other people. Yeah. Only oh, yeah. If it makes that person more likely to do it again. That's as good of a tool as anything. Sure. Yeah, but I mean, the fact that you had no choice in some level in being the person you are doesn't make your accomplishments less amazing, doesn't make Einstein less amazing, doesn't make you less amazing to me. You're still amazing to me, even if I know you didn't have choice, Robert. You really are. But yeah, so I think I think recognizing that, so I think, you know, even someone like Dan Dennett can at least, you know, say, okay, well, the book you've written, you know, or, or, the, or the arguments you've given are amazing arguments, and they've convinced me of this or that. And yeah, we'll give a prize for the amazing arguments. You're the person who happens to receive it. Big deal. But the arguments are the, the you know, it's, and it's like what, you know, in some sense, it's what I've, I've won prizes. You've won prizes. But I try to have the attitude of Feynman in that regard, who basically said, yeah, the prize is nice. But the real, the really neat thing was the discovery. You know, that's, that's what the great, and that's, and, and finding that out is cool. It's the thing, as you would say, is cool. And that's what makes it worthwhile of the prize. This, I want to end with two things. This was a hard book for you to write. It's clear it was a hard book for you to write. I mean, the agony of some of saying some of the things that you say that you know are going to be unpopular or difficult for people to accept. 
that may sound nutty as you say at one point or another, clearly gave you pause. How do you feel after having written it? Nervous as to who is going to feel deeply offended and hurt by it, but at least on a local level as a college teacher, I've like flaunted my atheism enough to have a little bit of experience of the pushback that it gets. Um, although mine has always been very compassionate, concerned people who are saying, please, 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 I want to be able to save your soul. I love you. Your soul is in danger. All of it. You know, what am I expecting with that? What I'm expecting in addition is having to focus a whole lot more on hundreds of pages and decades of thought about this stuff. I don't live this way most of the time. Sure. I'm mired in judgment and entitlement and all that sort of stuff. And like 1% of the time, I can achieve this mindset. And because I've been trying to do it for a long time, I like to think I achieve it in circumstances where it's more consequential. Like, should we consider somebody's well-being and needs to have been earned to be greater than we consider somebody else's? You know, let's stop for a second and really think about it because that doesn't make sense. And then I can I can think that way. And more importantly, I can feel that way for a couple of minutes at a time before it disappears. Well, that's what I was asking. I mean, some books I've written, I didn't know, which have just changed the way I think about the world without, you know, I knew what I wanted to say, but having written them, they, they, they allow, they help me personally. Is this self-help at all? Having, having formulated this in a coherent way, does it help you spend maybe instead of 1% of your time, 2% of your time um, feeling yes. that way or no? Yes, and not because this has been a journey of intellectual discovery, because, oh my God, I'm sitting here talking about this to all sorts of people. When I do one of those, they're going to be on top of me in a second. So I, I kind of, let's try to live this way a little bit more. Maybe maybe that's the cynical out. Um, you know, I once went to one of those Dalai Lama conferences where he hangs out with a bunch of neuroscientists and he's mm. got a bunch of his like all-star monks. Yeah. And we all talk to each other and we realize our vocabularies are so different. Yeah, and, I did the same thing at the Vatican once and we had nothing to say to each other. You're a braver man than me in terms of who you hung out with. And like at one point, one of the monks said something about what they do with their anger. with it, And they said something that was totally unexpected and it was gorgeous. And it was something I could never, never have viewed the world for. And I said, wow, that's amazing. This guy functions on a different planet. Wow. That would be an... All that's come out of all of this is like, yeah, like every now and then I can do that. And, and it's good when you're able to do it. More. But you just said something that actually was comes to the actually last thing, one of the last pages in your book. But when you said maybe, you know, it's not right to think that one person's needs and desires are more than the other. And you say the only possible moral conclusion is that you are no more entitled to have your needs and desires met than is any other human. There's no human who's less entitled than you to have their well-being considered. Well, in fact, that's a philosophy which actually Peter Singer, I mean, it's fresh on my mind because I've 
talk to Peter, the principle of equal consideration, which he says is true not just for humans, you're being, you know, um, speciesist, as he would say, but no, no being has more entitled than any other being to have their needs and desires met and not need to suffer. It's a, so what you've been driven to by this is a beautiful philosophy of, a, in some sense, effective altruism, but more importantly, the philosophy that, 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 that's led P- Peter to, I think, to be an amazingly ethical individual about, about, about humans and other animals. It's changed my own thinking, I have to say, about the world. That, that not, I think this argument can be extended, and it's natural to, to, to beyond humans to other species as well. Just don't expect me to find it to be easy to be that way all the time. And don't expect it's going to be easy for you, but no. it'll be a good thing if we do, because. Yeah, I, yeah exactly. It's not, I'm now, I'm now a vegetarian, for example, and I wasn't before and it's not, you know, well, it wasn't that difficult. Um, um, <laughs> but learning the last, let me end with the last few sentences of your book. Cause I want to, I think it's nice. Those in the future will marvel at what we didn't yet know, which really resonates with me because, of course, as you know, my new book is exa- is exactly that. I love the fact that it'll be out of date, and 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 the <laughs> fact that not knowing is what it's all about. And that, and if they don't marvel at what we don't know, then my goodness, we've made a big mistake. That we progress has ended. <laughs> there will be scholars opining about why, in the course of a few decades, around the start of the third millennium, most people stopped opposing gay marriage. History majors will struggle on final exams to remember whether it was the 19th, 20th, or 21st centuries when people began to understand epigenetics. They will view us as being as ignorant as we now view the goitered peasants who thought Satan caused seizures. That borders on the inevitable. But it need not be inevitable that they also view us as heartless. And I think that that's, that's important. That means... What you and I have been talking about together—that we can learn to change and be less heartless, but only under understanding how the world works. So I don't view this book and your work as in any way depressing or pessimistic. Just as I take the fact that there's no meaning in the universe as energizing, I take this beautiful piece of work on understanding how the world really works at the level of behavior as uplifting and a blueprint for thinking about how can we can make the world a better place. So I think you've done God's work, as my atheist friend Steve Weinberg used to say. So thank you so very much. It's been a Bless it's been you a, too. It's been a real pleasure. And I, I, I know I appreciate the time that you allowed me to take of yours. And I wanted to do Well, I thought I'd, I wanted to, um, to, to give you the time that was necessary. I wanted to, I wanted to, uh, uh, give it the, the arguments the time they deserved and, and I, we could have spent longer well, but it's been a pleasure likewise I hope we could do this in the same room sometime and talk for hours and hours and hours because... yeah I'm looking forward to that it's a, it's a real pl- privilege thanks again I hope you enjoyed today's conversation this podcast is produced by the Origins Project Foundation, a nonprofit organization whose goal is to enrich your perspective of your place in the cosmos by providing access to the people who are driving the future of society in the 21st century and to the ideas that are changing our understanding of ourselves and our world. To learn more, please visit 
OriginsProjectFoundation.org.